Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. All right, and we have another great speech from President Donald Trump. The date is September 12, 2020. Donald Trump was speaking today in Reno, and here is that speech. Beautiful. What a, what a crowd this one is. And you got thousands and thousands of people outside. They're taking buses here, working to get over here. Wow. Uh, thank you very much. So, I want to start by saying, hello, Nevada. How are you doing? How are you? And I'm thrilled to be in Douglas County, but people are coming from all over the place. There's a lot of people for Douglas County, isn't it? We have thousands and thousands of loyal, hardworking American patriots. That's what we have. And 52 days from now, we're going to win Nevada. And we're going to win four more years in the White House. And then after that, we'll negotiate, right? Because we're probably, based on the way we were treated, we're probably entitled to another four after that. And it should never happen to another president. It's just a dishonest group of people. But here we are. And we're going to be here for another four years. You know, the governor of your state tried very hard to stop us from having this event tonight. He didn't like us having. They can have riots and they can have all sorts of things. And that's OK. You can burn up the house. That's OK. You know, you call it. Uh, we call this a protest because if you call it a protest, you're allowed to have it. So if anybody asks you outside, this is called a friendly protest, okay? It's true. They have, you can't have political rallies. You, that's because of me, because if Biden were here, hit about three people. You ever see him with his little circles, a circle? You know why he puts the circles? Because he wants to be like correct with COVID, but it's not really, because they can't get anybody to fill up a room, so they put these big circles. So he can't get anybody to fill. Nobody wants to go. Oh, boy. You know, the, the fake news. Look at all those people back there. The fake news. That's true. Boy, they covered. Did you see the other day? Now they're finding out that to do an interview, an interview, they ask him a question. That means they're giving him the questions. They never gave me questions before. So to do an interview, he demands on getting the questions and his people write out the answers. So they ask him a question. He goes, bring that, uh, bring it up, bring it closer. I can't see it. Damn it. Great. This is something. You know, we have a debate coming up in three weeks. And 
Here's the problem. You know, Winston Churchill, did you ever hear of Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill was a great debater, great. And if Joe gets off the stage, walks off the stage, if he makes it, which I think he probably will, in all fairness. You know, he's been doing this for 47 years. I think he probably will. If he gets off the stage, they're going to say it was the single greatest debate they've ever seen. Winston Churchill was nothing compared to Sleepy Joe. You know that. You know that. They're going to say, what a great performance. He was great today. He was great. This guy was great. No, he's not great. But your governor tried to stop us. He tried to stop us, the governor of Nevada. He tried to stop us, and he went. we went to different venues. Kelly O'Donnell, you know, she's a fading reporter for NBC. Do you know that? She was on, she said, well, you know, they have a crowd tonight. Behind her, it looked like 25,000 people. That's what we have, by the way, a lot more coming in. But she said, He's got maybe a thousand people. A thousand. You know what I got? I have a thousand people here. No, this is the fake news. You know what? It's not a question of like how many. They are just a bunch of dishonest people. I've never seen anything like it. You know, being in real estate and being in New York and being in all over, I've seen a lot of dishonest people. I think the media, the fake news, is the most dishonest group of people I've ever seen anywhere in my entire life. And that includes, by the way, leaders of foreign countries that aren't our friends, okay? That's a big statement. They really are bad news. But here we are, and this is really amazing. The governor tried to stop us. He couldn't. But think of this. He's in control of millions of votes. Here's a guy calling venues, telling them not to have the rally, calling different venues, don't have the rally. We're not gonna let you have the rally. And he's calling this governor who is a political hack. He was a political hack and then he became governor. And this is the guy that we're entrusting with millions of ballots, unsolicited ballots, millions and millions. And then we're supposed to win these states and we have a guy that would do that where he won't let us have it. We call it a protest and therefore we can do it. But you want to know something? It's a disgrace. So who the hell is going to trust? You know, they say trust, trust government. Well, how would you trust a guy that fought that we aren't here, that we can't have all these thousands of people? Boy, you are really back far. That's, look at that. No, but, but seriously. And now he's in charge of, he's in charge of the election and the millions of ballots. So if I'm up like millions of votes, he can rig the election. He can rig the election. And I'll tell you what, whether it's in North Carolina, whether it's in Michigan, whether it's in other states where they're sending out, they're going to be sending out, they're going to be sending out 80 million ballots that and it's democrats they're gonna they're trying to rig this election at every single place in the last year year and a half go modern day forget about tiny amounts a congressional race in new york a small number of votes uh if you go to new jersey if you go to virginia if you go to pennsylvania if you go to california look at some of these races 
Everyone, every one of these races was a fraud, missing ballots. And I don't mean like 1%. I mean like 20%, 25%. They're trying to rig the election. They should make people, if you register, if you want a solicited ballot, that's where you ask for it. You have to sign papers. You get it because you can't be there. That's one thing. When they send 80 million ballots to people, they have no idea where they're going. Actually, they probably do have a good idea where they're going. And that's our problem. They send 80 million ballots out. Where are they going? Who are they sending them to? Are they sending them to certain areas and not other areas? Are they sending them to Democrat areas? These are all controlled by Democrat governors, like your politically motivated governor. So, so just to finish on that, look, just to finish on that, he's a guy that tried to silence us by not having this, and it ended up our crowd turned out to be a lot bigger than NBC, which is, which is, which is owned by Comcast, C-O-N, Comcast, C-O-N-C-A-S-T, Comcast. It's really Comcast, but I call it Con because it's a whole Con. I'll tell you what, you know, they talked in the old days, I think it should still be, news when they broadcast had to be reasonably accurate, right? And they had licensing. Today they can do whatever the hell they want. It's fake news and it's a disgrace. And you know what, back there, and I'll tell you, it's hurting our country. It's hurting our country. They're the biggest problem that this country has is the fake news media. Worse than the Democrats, because, you know, the Democrats are their partners. They play together. Joe Biden spent the last 47 years selling out America, offshoring your jobs, throwing open your borders, depleting our military, and sacrificing your children's future in China. I've spent the last four years bringing our jobs back to America, securing our borders, rebuilding our military, and standing up to China like never before. Nobody has ever stood up to China like we have stood up to China. And you haven't seen the last of it. Sleepy Joe Biden surrendered. You know where he is now? He's in his damn basement again. No, he's in his basement. He's in his basement. But, you know, I can be bad to him because he put the most vicious ad on television that I've ever seen. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where I'm standing over the graves of our fallen warriors, our fallen heroes. These are great people, the greatest people there are. And I'm standing over there, and they have some sleazebag reporter from a third-rate magazine having some source quoting me, saying, I won't even use the term, but saying bad things. And there's nobody that loves our military, respects it, and the people more than me. And they took... And I didn't even ask. We had 25 people that were witnesses that are on the record already that have said that never took place. It never took place what they said. And yet, pathetic Joe, and he's a pathetic human being to allow that to happen. Here's the problem. He doesn't even know it happened. I don't, th I don't think. I think he has no idea. But he's a pathetic human being to let that happen, where they put an ad like that, where I'm standing over graves, and then they said, he said this. 
with no sources, no nothing. They got nothing. And I have 25 real witnesses with the names, with everything, saying it never happened. And they put an ad like that up. They're a disgrace. But you know the good part? Now I can be really vicious. I can be really vicious. And we'll start by saying, we're going to start by saying that the Democrats are trying to rig this election because it's the only way they're going to win. The only way they're going to win is to rig it. Biden surrendered your jobs to China. He, look, his son walked away with a billion and a half dollars. Give me a break. Give me a break. His son's going to say, Dad, you can't take this money away. Don't do it, Dad, please. I you know how much experience he had? There's a young man, there's a young man here. He's a very young, young man, handsome young guy. He's about like 12. You know what? He's got more experience than Hunter. Hunter. Where's Hunter? Where is he? With no experience, no knowledge of energy, no job, got thrown out of the military. You don't get thrown out, by the way. I used to be nice about that. Now I don't. Once I saw that ad, I don't have to be nice anymore. Okay, I really mean it. You know, and by the way, on that ad, I know some horrible people, horrible human beings, some of the worst people in the world. I really do. They're horrible. None of those people, and they're the worst, the worst. Real estate developers in New York, you don't get much worse. I know some of the worst people in the world. Not one person do I know that would say that standing on top of graves, of heroes, really. Not one person. So I will tell you this. So now... We can play it like it is. Let's face it. Joe is shot. Let's face it, okay? He's shot. So not that he has anything to do because he won't know what's happening. He'll just be locked up in a room someplace and the radical left is going to be running our country. Yeah. Thank you. But now he wants to surrender our country to the violent left-wing mob. You know that. If Biden wins, China wins. If Biden wins, the mob wins. You see what's going on with all these Democratic, or I always say Democrat-run cities and states? It's a disaster. It's a disaster. And we keep saying, let us bring in the troops. Well, we did in Minneapolis. We ended it in 45 minutes. It was ended. They went through two weeks. By the way, we could do it in Portland in half an hour. It would all be over. But we have these stupid people that think, how about that poor mayor? Is that pathetic, Wheeler? Is that pathetic? They forced him out of his home. He's, had a He's now finding a new home. It's so nice. It's pathetic. Honestly, it's pathetic. We could solve that problem in a half an hour, just like we did. And by the way, the U.S. Marshals did a great job in Portland. They did a great job. You know what I mean. If Biden wins, the rioters win, the anarchists win, arsonists, flag burners, they all win. I'm running for re-election to bring prosperity to Nevada, to, whole, to the whole country. I've been here a long time. I have some things in Nevada that are very good. To put violent criminals behind bars and to ensure the future belongs to America, not to China. I do get a kick out of watching a guy, oh, I'm going to do this. You know, he copied my whole plan. You see, he says, buy America. I said, where the hell have you been for the last half century? We love Trump. We love Trump. We love Trump.
Could, could I ask the could I ask the fake news to take your cameras and show all the way back there for hundreds of yards all the way back there take your cameras go as far as the eye can see no now tell NBC News it's not a thousand people you don't you don't you can't see it you can't see it down here you won't believe how many people that thing goes back. So the bottom line is when we win, America wins. That's what's happening. And nobody's done to China what I did. Look. Billions, tens of billions of dollars of tariffs we took in. I gave $28 billion to farmers. The farmers are doing very well. They're doing very well. Thank you. Thank you, President Trump. $28 billion, $16 billion one year, $12 billion they were targeted. I said, how much is it? Sonny Perdue, Secretary of Agriculture, great guy. I said, how much were they hurt by? Sir, $12 billion two years ago and $16 billion last year. I said, all right, good. We'll take it out of China. We gave him $28 billion to the farmers. That never happened before. You think Joe Biden would even think about it? He wouldn't even think about it. He wouldn't even think about it. No, he's more worried about, does he have a teleprompter to answer a reporter's question? You know, the worst part about that isn't the fact that he's doing that, because let's face it, he's unable, okay? It's not that. It's that the fake news would give him the questions. They never gave me the questions. Did you ever give me questions back there? Did you ever give me questions? They don't give me questions. The fake news would give him questions. But of course, now Donna Brazil works for Fox, so that's gone a long way. Remember? Remember when Donna Brazil gave Crooked Hillary the questions, right, to a debate? And then she said, well, I don't think I did it. I don't remember. I knew she was in trouble when she said, um, I don't remember doing that. I don't remember. She didn't remember. Oh, okay. Well, as long as you don't remember. It's true. It's true, too. It's true. You know what? I used to stand back and I'd say, you know, be quiet, please. Don't say that. It's really not nice. You know, it's true. She deleted 33. Think of it. They'll never find the emails because they were acid washed, de deleted. But you know what? She got a subpoena from the United States Congress, right? And she and her lawyer deleted 33,000 emails after she got a United States subpoena. And you say, why isn't she guilty of a major crime, right? And then she took her telephones and she smashed them with a hammer, right? And then she took the other ones and she deleted them. And now the Mueller scam, these people, the worst people. I have a friend, a very smart guy, very streetwise guy. He said, you have to be the most honest guy in the world to go through three years of investigations where they have the worst human beings in the world. They worked for the Democrats. They worked. I mean, Mueller didn't have a clue. This guy was totally. But look at this. Weissman. How bad was Weissman? He deleted his phone. That's illegal. He deleted everything. They all deleted. And they all said, oh, gee, we made a mistake. We're sorry. They all used the same mistake. They all made. It was, oh, gee, we didn't mean to do that. Every one of them, all of them, I think it was 31 different phones. 
they deleted. These are criminals we're dealing with, and they've got to, there has to be a repercussion. There has to be a repercussion. We're dealing with criminals. So I don't care if you say it anymore, because you know what? She illegally deleted, and her lawyer should go to jail with her, okay? And the fact is, the Republican Party doesn't play it rough and tough like those people. They don't play it the same way. They're too nice. And you know, we have better policy. Thank goodness we have better policy. We, we believe in borders. We believe in no sanctuary cities. We believe in lowering taxes. We have better, but our people don't. We have some that are very good. Jim, Jim Jordan, good, right? Jim Jordan. Mark Meadows, good, right? No, we have some very good. But I'll tell you what, we play it so nice. And in the end, it's not right, because what they get away with, and Obama and Biden got caught spying on our campaign, using the intelligence, I put that in quotes, using intelligence to spy on our campaign. And they got caught. They got caught. And you know, if it was me that got caught, forget about it. But they got caught. And somebody said, well, I know, but he was president. Oh, great. I'm president, too. And a hell of a lot better president than he is, I can tell you that. You know, Obama came into office. They gave him the Nobel Prize, like, almost immediately, right? In fact, he didn't even know why he got it. He didn't even know. He had no idea why he got it. And he was right about that, because nobody else does either. They still don't know, but we've done a lot of things. So we were nominated a few days ago for a Nobel Prize. Which is a big thing, Nobel Peace Prize. And then yesterday, we were nominated a second time for another Nobel Prize. Now, that's a big thing. To me, you know, it's a big thing, even though, obviously, it's a very political thing. But it's a very big thing, the Nobel Peace Prize, right? I got, it was just reported, I'm just reporting this, I got zero time on the nightly news, on the network news. Zero. Zero. We got zero time. Think of it. The president of your country is honored by being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And your nightly news, ABC, which is terrible, CBS, which is terrible, and probably the worst of all, owned by Comcast. They spend a fortune, you know, on PR. And then every time I get up, I call them Comcast and sort of wipe out their fortune. But they are bad people. But NBC is the worst of them all. Not one mention. These people are corrupt. Not one mention. Not one mention. So your president gets a Nobel and at least a nomination, and they don't mention it. Joe Biden cannot lead our country because he doesn't really believe in our country. Right now, I don't think he believes in anything. He just wants to go to sleep. That's all. Please, darling, I want to go to bed. I'm exhausted. I made, I made one speech yesterday. But darling, they gave you the answers and the questions. I know, but that was a big strain because my eyes, I couldn't see the teleprompter. This guy is the worst. I am running, and you know, it's going to maybe come back to haunt me because we have a rigged election. It's a rigged election. It's the only way we're going to lose. But I'll tell you what, 
He is the worst candidate in the history of presidential politics. He doesn't know he's alive. He doesn't know he's alive. And what and I got to know President Xi of China very well. President Putin of Russia, Kim Jong-un. By the way, what happened to the war? So always so going to war with Kim Jong-un. What, where's the war? Where's the war? Oh, I see. Oh, I see. It never happened, did it? Never happened, did it? Well, maybe someday. Could happen. Now, remember, we're going to be, Trump is going to be, you know, my personality, right? Trump is going to be at war within the first week after he wins. Uh, where's the war? In fact, the Peace Prize was because I stayed out of wars. And by the way, ended certain wars that could have happened that you don't even know about. And look at look what we did. Look what we did just yesterday in Europe. And look what we did with Israel. And you just saw that with United Arab Emirates, Bahrain. For 72 years, nothing happened. And we did it. We do it very fast. And plenty of other countries are going to be coming in. At Biden's convention, they decried it. You're a hell of a crowd, I'll tell you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, after this is over, after this is over, you'll have like an NBC, this third-rate reporter stand up. Uh, they had a small crowd, a uh, insignificant, insignificant crowd in a great location. You know how great it was? We landed. We had to drive for 50 minutes. That's how great. But I like it anyway. I'll take it. I'll take it anyway. I like it. You're my kind of people. We love each other. I like it. We landed the big, beautiful Air Force One. I just asked as we're coming in, why couldn't we have landed here? I would have rather, you know, then I could have had the plane right behind me. Instead, we have the beast. See the beast. What you don't know is the beast costs almost as much as the plane, I think. It's a hell of a car. It's a walking army tank. The beast. So, but we could have. I said, why don't we just land here? And we couldn't. So I get off the plane. Oh, good. How long will it be? About 50 minutes. That's a long drive. And driving here, there were tens of thousands of people on the streets with flags. And then you read these fake reporters and they say, uh, President Trump is tied in Nevada. Tied. I don't think so. The only way we're tied is if they screw around with the ballots, which they will do in my opinion, okay? Uh, we're not tied anywhere. I asked some people that traveled with Obama. I said, was it the same thing? They say, not even a tiny fraction of what you have. There's not even a fraction. We have more enthusiasm. We have more spirit than any campaign that anybody's ever seen. It's true. And that includes 2016, where the, the enthusiasm obviously was great. 
How about all those states that we weren't supposed to win? No, he won't win there. He won't win there then all night long. Donald Trump won the great state of Texas. Donald Trump won the great state of this and that and one after another. And they were going, was that one of the coolest things, watching their people go crazy? They went crazy. No, they went crazy. How is he going to do in Georgia? Well, I think Georgia is going to be very close. It's going to be very close. They go, uh, the polls in Georgia have closed. Donald Trump wins the state of Georgia. You know why? Because we won by so much that they can do it simultaneously by saying the polls closed and he won. We had many of them, right? And we're doing, by the way, we're doing great. I just had Florida as a biggie and a good one. And we are winning in Florida by a lot. So that's good. A lot. I'll tell you here because you don't read about that stuff. They don't like to write that. They don't like to write it. They have all fake polls. I'll tell you what, the polls are worse than the writing. Actually, in my opinion, the polls, you know, they're suppression polls. They're meant to make people discouraged. Even me, I'm supposed to be discouraged. And fortunately, four years ago, we weren't discouraged because if we would have believed the polls, nobody would have voted. The concept is really make people feel so that on election, they go, darling, let's go out to dinner. It's so sad about the president. Oh, I wish he was going to win, but let's go out to dinner, then we'll come home. Well, let's not bother voting, right? Let's not bother voting. See, it's a suppression. But we, my people don't get suppressed. My people go out and vote. My people go out and vote. There's no suppression. Phony polls. How about the guy the New York Times hired this pollster, this great genius. He never called one wrong. I don't know, 346. I don't know what the hell it's like. It's called 340. What's his num what's his deal? Yeah, it's silver. Silver. Nate Silver. They pay him a fortune. He said, I think he gave us a 2% chance, a 3% chance. Donald Trump has a 3% chance today of winning. The damn thing was over by 10 o'clock. He was given, we were given a very tiny chance. What chance did he give us? Like 9%, something like that, you know? They gave him millions of dollars shortly before because he never called one wrong. He called that one wrong. He called that one wrong. And this is the one why, I mean, I must tell you, they're a little more accurate. At least here they have us even in a lot of places. But he's even. Well, we're not even. We're not even. This is going to be the greatest victory. This is a more important election than four years ago. I'll tell you. More important. Because at no time before has there been a clearer choice between two parties or two visions, two philosophies, two agendas for the future. There's no, never been anything like this. On November 3rd, Nevada will decide whether we will quickly return to record prosperity like we had. We had the greatest economy in the history, not of our country, in the world. We were beating everybody. We were beating China. Remember, if you go back, some of you go back, if you go back 10 years, 15 years, five years, everything was... In 2019, China will overtake the United States as the largest economy. And that didn't work out too well for them. That didn't work out. We were, we were just doing leaps and bounds. We were doing so great. And then we got hit with the plague, the China plague. And we're not, uh, we're not thrilled. It's a disgrace. Nobody should have died. Nobody should have died. We got hit. The whole world got hit. But they stopped it from going into the rest of China. They stopped it from going into China. But they didn't stop it from coming into the U.S. and Europe and 188 countries. So 
Whether or not we allow Biden to impose the biggest tax increase in the history of our country, $4 trillion, or ban, he wants to ban energy, ban American. He wants to stop fracking. Hey, by the way, when he was running as a Democrat and in the worst debate performances I've ever seen, okay, what do you think? He was unable to answer anything. Are you awake, sir? Sir, please wake up. And who was the worst? Who, who treated him the worst? Kamala. Kamala. She's another beauty. She started off as a favorite. She was at 15. Then she went down to 14, to 12, to 10. She was like a dropping rock in water. She was going down so fast. Then she went down to five and four and three, two. And then she said, I got to get the hell out of here. Just get embarrassed. And nobody treated him worse than Kamala, right? She called him a racist. She called him everything. She was horrible to him. And he says, I'm going to choose Kamala. She's just great. Oh, yeah. Ah, these people, these people. No, you're supposed to choose the people that did well. She got out before Iowa, as I remember, right? She didn't want to run in Iowa. And then Bernie got, again, this guy is the greatest loser ever because, no, no. No, he's a good sport, Bernie. Crazy Bernie. He's so crazy. But he's a good sport because, you know, with Hillary, they really did. Uh, do we have any young children here? I know it's on a lot of television. Could you turn television off just for a minute? Just for about three seconds. He got screwed, right? Okay, now you can turn it back on. But then he really did with this last one. Because if Pocahontas, Elizabeth won, if she would have left the race, one day before the big Super Tuesday, she, I mean, Bernie would have her philosophy, right? Liberals. By the way, you know who's more liberal than Bernie? Kamala. She's rated the number one most liberal. But this is not for Nevada. This is not for. And I would say she'll be president. If he ever won, she'll be president within the first month or so, I would say. I think it's just an excuse. Using him is just an excuse to get the super libs in there so they can destroy our suburbs, demolish our Second Amendment, erase your borders, and indoctrinate your children with poisonous, anti-American lies in school. So under my leadership, we built the greatest economy in the history of the world, and now we're doing it again. We're doing it again. You see the number. And we're developing a vaccine in record time. It will be ready before the end of the year and maybe much sooner than that. They're very unhappy about that. You know, it's amazing. We have a couple of really great experts. One who's, we call him Dr. Scott. You know what I'm talking about? He's great. He said, you know, this is the only time they were grilling him on television. Saying, well, the vaccine's going too fast. You know why that's too fast? Because they don't want it to happen before the election. He said, you know, this is the only thing in the world. I've never seen anything like it. Everybody wants a vaccine. And when we start getting it fast, because President Trump happens to be president, and we've done this in record time, years ahead of schedule. If this were Sleepy Joe and Obama, you wouldn't have a vaccine for three years. But listen, he said, this is the craziest thing. So you're going to have a vaccine quickly, right? And everybody's upset about it. So now they're trying to hurt the vaccine. And they're trying to say as many bad things. They know nothing about it. But they're trying to hurt it. And it's a shame. But he said it better than anybody I've heard. He said, you know, you're trying to hurt this country by saying bad things about the vaccine because we're going to produce it early. 
It's the craziest thing. Think about it. Now, having a vaccine is good, but we're rounding the turn regardless. We're rounding the turn, and it's happening. I mean, it's happening. You see it. Florida's way down. Texas is now way down. Arizona, governor's done a great job. All three governors have done a great job. And uh, Louisiana now, they had a spike, but they had the spike. But the spike was able to be handled because now we understand. And what we did, we saved millions of lives because I hated to do it, but we had to close it up, understand this disease, and then open up again. And we opened, but we would have had two million, two and a half, or three million people. Think of it. We're at like around 180,000. One is too many. One. Too many. But we would have had two and a half, three, three and a half million people. It would not have been acceptable, would not have been sustainable. We've done an incredible job. And these people that have done it with me, the ventilators, the vaccines, the therapeutics, these people, I mean, the hospitals, the beds that we built, the ships that we sent to New York, the ships that we sent to have an ungrateful governor in New York, Cuomo, to have an ungrateful governor, we sent him ships. We sent them ships. We sent them. We built a convention center with 2,800 beds, and he didn't use the beds for senior citizens. He hardly used the beds at all. He hardly used the ships at all. He said we did a phenomenal job, and now he gets political. He wants to get political with me. A real wise guy, but that's okay. You got to see what they are doing between him and uh, de Blasio. That's another beauty. What they've done to my beautiful city. I love that city so much. What they've done is so horrible. The highest taxes in the land. Crime all over the place. They're like 300% up in crime. We need Rudy to come out of retirement. But we're defeating the China virus when Biden was vice president. He was a complete disaster on the swine flu, which was a much easier thing to handle. Joe Biden's own chief of staff said that when Biden managed swine flu in 2009, they, quote, did every possible thing wrong. This is the guy that worked for him in charge of the swine flu. And 60 million Americans got H1N1 in a period of time. And it's just purely a fortune. He said it was just we were lucky. He said, it's just lucky that there weren't great mass casualties, different kind of a disease a little bit. And what he said is amazing. He said, we did nothing right. This is the man that's going to tell us all about building ventilators. You think Joe's going to be able to build thousands of ventilators a month, which now we're doing and sending them to all these countries all over the world who have no hope of building ventilators and they need them badly. So, you know, <laughs> It's an amazing thing. The outbreak was so rampant that Obama-Biden, the administration, told states to stop testing immediately, and they ordered the CDC to stop counting cases because they looked like hell, okay? We didn't do that. We have, by the way, the reason we show so many cases, because we have the best testing program in the world by far. By far. We've tested more people than India, then many, many big countries put together. India's second. We're 44 million tests ahead of India. They have 1.5 billion people. And Prime Minister Modi calls me and says, what a job you've done with testing. I said, explain that to these uh, dishonest people back Biden's record demonstrates that if he had been in charge when the China virus arrived, hundreds of thousands of more Americans would have died. 
As vice president, he presided over the worst and the weakest and the slowest economic recovery since the Great Depression. You've heard that before. It was the most pathetic recovery since the Depression. No state was hit harder by Biden's failure than Nevada. And I was out here, and he was, that's right about that. I would tell you, you got hit hard. This is not the guy you want. But under my administration, before the virus, we quickly achieved the lowest unemployment rate in the history of Nevada, and we'll soon have it back there again. We'll soon have it back there again. But I hope everybody here, 25,000 people, whatever the hell it is, including those people back there, they're angry at me. I don't know why we gave the press this good location. Because, no, it blocks the people of thousands of people back there, and the press is blocking them. And I consider them much more important than I do the press. But Biden wants to raise your taxes so high, he would eradicate your economy. He'd put on new regulations, and it wouldn't be him again. I'm going to keep saying it. It will be the people that control him. He's a puppet. And then he wants to do a complete shutdown. We're setting records. You know, we just set a job record for four months, 10.4 million people. Listen to this. So when we had this pandemic worldwide, you know, look, it's, it, it's a terrible thing that a thing like this happened. People were saying we could go to 41, 42 percent unemployment. You know, we are now 8.4 percent. I don't say that's. If you would have said that and we have the strongest, highest stock market in history. So your 401ks are doing great. If he got in, we would have the greatest depression in the history of our country. I mean it. I think 1929 would look like good times, all right? Because he'd do everything wrong. He'd raise your taxes. He'd raise the hell out of interest rates. He'd do everything wrong. The Biden shutdown will permanently destroy the lives and dreams of tens of millions of Americans, inflict totally lasting harm on our children, and lead countless deaths from suicide. Don't forget, when you do these shutdowns, your state is shut down. You got a governor, you're shut down. Except, except if you have a riot. You're not shut down for riots. Riots you can have. They can burn the hell out of this strip. They can burn the hell out of Reno. They can do whatever the hell they want if it's a riot. But if you want to go to church, you can't do it. If you want to be in a group of people, you can't do it. But you know, there's a lot of harm done on the other side. There's a lot of tremendous harm done. Remember, the cure can't be worse. Remember that. And on the other side, drugs, suicide, depression, substance abuse of different kinds, heart disease. You have tremendous problems on the other side. Open your schools. Open up. we got to open up this thing. And I guarantee you, and by the way, you know, the states that are open are doing really well. They're doing much better than the ones that are closed. I don't know if you've been seeing the numbers. And this is just arithmetic. The states that are open are doing great. The states that are closed, North Carolina, what he's doing to that great state. He's got it locked down, shut down. Michigan, what she's doing, and we're trying to get Big Ten football, by the way, but we won't even. Michigan, what she's doing to Michigan is unbelievable. Take a look at what they're doing to Pennsylvania. And here's another governor in charge of millions of ballots. So I'm going to win Pennsylvania, but what's he going to do with these ballots? Where are they going? Who are they sending? Who's sending them back? 
Who's signing? They don't even have to have an authorized signature in Nevada. Do you know that? They don't have to have, you don't have to have an authorized signature or a ballot? No. They're trying to rig an election, and we can't let that happen. I hope you're all going to be poll watchers. I hope you are. Because with you people watching the polls, it's going to be pretty hard to cheat, I'll tell you. I wouldn't want to be a cheater. They'll figure a way. No, they are. It's a very dangerous thing. It's a very dangerous thing, and I totally mean it, and I've been at it. And you see people, and by the way, it's not, not even politics, it's common sense. They said millions of ballots, people are getting ballots. People died, and they're getting ballots. They're sending them to dogs, you see that? Dogs got ballots. Everybody's getting ballots. Probably everybody but Republican are going to get the ballots, right? And they're unsolicited. So when you say, you know, solicited, because I like solicited better as a word than absentee. Absentee, nobody knows what the hell it's supposed to represent. It's not really a good definition. One is solicited, where you ask, you solicit the ballot, you want it, you sign papers, they send it to you, you send it back, it's okay. It's good. But unsolicited, where they take millions of ballots. So what happens? I happen to think the postal people are great. But what happens if one of the post guys before he gives a ballot, he takes a whole handful and hands them to some Democrat political operative, right? And so he hands them a thousand ballots, and the guy doesn't even have to, you don't have to have verification to do that. Now, here's the good news. We're in front of a court, and hopefully the court's going to rule, because this is the greatest scam, this is the greatest scam in the history of presidential politics. These people are, they've gone crazy. Biden and his party of liberal hypocrites want to lock law-abiding Americans in their homes, which is what they're doing. And they want to keep them out of church. They really do. They're fighting God, they're fighting guns, and they're fighting oil. Think of it. I don't think they'll do too well in Texas. Did you see what they said? We think the race will be quite close in Texas, but the president has an edge. Listen. I'm in favor of oil and energy. I'm in favor of religion and God. Okay. And I'm in favor of our great Second Amendment guns. So he's against our Second Amendment. Okay, you know who he put in charge? Beto. Beto. Or as he says, is Beto, Beto. So when Beto was legit, and then Ted Cruz beat him, and Ted did a, did a very good job, I tell you. He did a great job. So, but Beto went totally south. He went totally, he's gone crazy. So he now is a big gun guy. He wants to take guns away from everybody. So who did Biden put in charge? Beto. Remember, Beto was interviewed in some magazine, a third-rate magazine. Most of them are. But remember, and Beto said, this was at the beginning, before he got beat to hell. He, I said, he thought this was easy, didn't he? But remember when Beto said, I was born for this. As soon as I hear somebody's born for running for president, I said, he's out. That's the end of him. <laughs> Nobody's born for this. This is tough stuff. I, I had a great life. I'll tell you, my life was so beautiful. What the hell did I do this for? But you know what? You know what? We are doing things that nobody's ever done before. And I say it all the time, and that's what makes me happy. We're dealing with very sick and very bad and evil people. But I'll tell you, no administration in three and a half years, no administration has done what we've done in the first three and a half years.
But they want to punish you for praying in church while they let agitators and arsonists burn your churches down. Look at Washington. They want to burn the churches down, and that's fine. But, you know, you want to go pray in church, they won't let you do that. Just last week, Biden proudly accepted the endorsement of pro-criminal, anti-police Portland district attorney, who has a policy of releasing rioters, vandals, criminals, and violent extremists without any charges. No charges. Never saw anything. By the way, all of these places we're talking about, you know, are Democrat-run. Chicago, New York, Portland, Seattle. The only reason Seattle got settled, because they knew we were going in. We told them, we're going in tomorrow morning. We're going to open it up. We're going to take it. It would have taken us 20 minutes. So they sent people that night because they didn't want to be embarrassed. But look at what we've done. And so every place we've touched, we solved the crime. But they have to ask us. If they don't ask us, we're not supposed to do it. But maybe we do it anyway. And it usually takes anywhere from 25 minutes to about uh, one hour. Wasn't that a beautiful sight, though, in Minneapolis, right? They're burning the poor city down. I love that state. I think we have a chance of winning that state. First time in many years for a republic. They're burning Minneapolis. You don't think of Minneapolis that way, right? You don't think of it. The city is burning down. You have this fake CNN reporter. What's his name? Velchi, the nice shaved head. Maybe I should try that. Should I try that? No, I don't know. Donald Trump went down substantially in the polls, like about 40%. He showed up with a new haircut. It's called the shave head, Ali Velchi. And remember, he said, no, this is a friendly protest. It's a friendly protest, and it's really quite nice. And people are throwing bottles at him. He's being hit with tear gas. This is a friendly protest. And you look over his shoulder, and the entire city was burning. You remember the scene? The thing looked like it was 30 blocks. It was just burning. And he's talking about, this is all fake news. And nobody would have known. I knew it before I did it, but I never knew it to this extent. I never knew it to this extent. It is corrupt, it's fake, and they shouldn't be allowed to do it. They shouldn't be allowed. These are far-left lunatics that Biden selects to staff his government. There are policies Biden's pledged to apply nationwide. You're going to have the suburbs. You know, they have a, uh, a plan. It doesn't matter. It's a regulation, very horrible regulation. For the Does anybody live in the suburbs? Because if you don't... If you don't vote for Trump in the suburbs, okay? You know, women that live in the suburbs, they say, oh, they don't like Donald Trump. I said, I think they do. Remember last time? Remember, it's the same thing. No, it's the same thing. Remember last time, four years ago, Donald Trump will not do well with women. I said, why, am I so bad? Donald Trump will not. And then the votes start coming in. He's doing very well, Jim, with women. I don't know what's going on. We did very well with women. We did well with everybody. We did well with everybody. But they have a regulation. And Ben Carson was fantastic, the head of HUD. I said, Ben, they're going to destroy the suburbs. And they wanted Cory Booker to head that program. But the program was already doing damage. They were playing with the zoning so they could build projects in the suburbs, projects in the suburbs. And I said, we're going to end it. Somebody said, sir, let's just amend it. I said, nope, we got to end it. End it. I want to end it. I don't want, I don't want to have a lesser version. But if he gets in, they will open up that, that whole program. They're going to open it up. 
on steroids. They're going to open it up to a level that you wouldn't have believed possible. And he will drive you out of the suburbs. He will drive you out of the, he'll drive you out of everything. They're going to, they're going to open up their, I call it the suburban destruction program because that's what they've done. And it's been a horrible program. It's been very unfair to people with the American dream. And let me just tell you something. 30% of the people that live in the suburbs are minorities. They're Hispanic, they're black, they're Asian. It's the American dream and they want the American dream and they don't want that to happen. That's why I'm doing so well with African-American, with Asian-American, with Hispanic-American and with women. But don't let them ruin the suburbs because they will put that regulation back immediately immediately and don't let them ruin the suburbs because the suburbs are a special place the suburbs are the american dream that's where everyone aspires to and that includes minorities and everybody don't let them ruin the suburbs and with that comes tremendous crime and you know i was being i was talking the other day darling somebody just moved next door who is it it's a, a representative of antifa she will look at her husband and say, darling, we're out of here. We're out of here. Antifa, remember they were trying to blame uh, other people. They don't like to mention the name Antifa. I said, it's Antifa, and I was right. I was right. They're bad people. And you know what? They have to pay a price for the damage and for the horror that they've caused. They have to pay a price. And it's so easy. It's so easy. A lot of them now are wealthy. You know, they're like these wealthy, spoiled kids that have no clue about life. They've got arms that are about this big, and the, but they wear heavy jackets with lots. And you look, you say, oh, that guy looks tough. And then the jacket comes off, and you see these two little. Then they go home, and they live in a basement, too, their mom and dad's basement. But Biden's plan is to appease domestic terrorists. And my plan is to arrest domestic terrorists. Joe Biden is a weak person. He does whatever his left-wing puppet masters demand. You know that. Joe, Joe doesn't look. Joe doesn't know what's going on. You know that. I mean, let's be nice about it, okay? And I'm being nice when I say it. He'll never be able to protect your family, your loved ones, or your community. If Biden's elected, his radical supporters won't just cause mayhem on the streets like you're seeing. All Democrats. We could solve it so fast. Chicago. A few weekends, think of it, 72 people shot. This is shot. Somebody said, you mean with bullets? I said, yeah, with bullets. 18 people died. Now, we're pulling our troops out of Afghanistan, out of Iraq. You see what's happening. But, but let me tell you, but we don't, there's nothing like that over there. They don't have 18 people killed or 12 people, you know, in a short period of time. Where you have 70 people shot, where you have... Another weekend where they had, I think a few weekends ago, 38 people have been shot in Chicago. This I said, 38, it's not even believable. And now when these people say it, they make it, you know, they try and play it down. And you're sitting there, you said, did I just hear 38 people were shot? It's just a terrible thing. And it can all be stopped. It can all be stopped so quickly, but they have to respect law and they have to have order. Law and order. But these radical lefts will be running the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and the United States Supreme Court. And you see what's going on there. If we don't, you know, the next president, hopefully, is going to be us, not me, us.
but the next president is going to have one, two, three, or four Supreme Court choices. It's just, you know, just that time, right? Just that time. Going to be a minimum of one, I would say, but it will be one, two, three, or four. And that's going to change the whole makeup of the Supreme Court. That's going to take away your guns. That's going to destroy your Second Amendment. That's going to change the whole rationale, thinking on so many different subjects like you wouldn't believe, including, by the way, life. Okay, life, pro-life. Anybody pro-life here? Now, this is going to change the makeup of this country for 50 years. I don't know that the country will survive 50 years if that happens. It might not survive five years if that happens. But the next president, and you saw I put out a list of an additional number of very conservative, highly thought of, highly respected judges. And they are uh, the only people that I will pick, meaning the first list, the second list, it's about 44, 45 people. They are the only people that I will consider for the Supreme Court of the United States. And I'm asking Joe Biden to do the same thing. But he can't because he's got a bunch of radical left maniacs that they want to put on the court. And nobody can get elected, not even with Democrats, rational Democrats, will they vote for some of these people to be on. So, so far, he's refused to do it. I'm probably forcing him tonight to do something. But he should put out a list of his judges so that you know where you stand. Biden supports cutting police funding, you know that, abolishing, and by the way, did you see we just got Chicago police today endorsed Trump? That's not easy to do. Chicago. New York's finest. New York's finest endorsed. Florida, Ohio, Texas, we have everybody. Is there a police officer in the country? If there is, they'll do a commercial. This officer loves Sleepy Joe Biden. He's so tough on crime. So Biden's been going down very rapidly in the polls, and now what he's doing is he's playing tough guy. They're just tough on crime. All of a sudden, he goes from a demolish, demolish and defund, okay? But he goes from, let's not give the police any money. Let's not even say defund for him. His people want to defund the police. They actually have places, Seattle, they actually don't want to have police. Minneapolis, they don't want to have police. They don't want to have police. What's going to happen? You saw the commercial we put up. A woman's being murdered. I'm sorry, we cannot take your call right now. We will call you back within the next 24 hours. A woman's being raped, right? Uh, I'm sorry, we cannot respond right now because we have been defunded, but we will try getting there within the next week. This is what you're going to have. I mean, that was a strong commercial. It had a big impact. But this is what you're buying with a guy like this. This guy, you're going to have Portland's all over this country, and we can't, we can't allow that to happen. Not here. He says, not here in Nevada. Well, with your governor, it could happen here, too. I can tell They want to abolish bail. So they want to abolish cash bail like they did in New York. They release people. The horrible criminals in New York, they release them. No cash bail. And he calls law enforcement. Biden called law enforcement the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're our friends. They're our great friends. They're our great friends. And without them, we wouldn't be here. Here in Nevada, rioters burned the city hall in Reno. Does anybody uh, know that? Do you know that? That's not a pleasant sight. 
How did you allow that to happen? I would have thought you people would have gotten out there and said, you're not going to burn our city hall. And during the violent demonstrations in Las Vegas, a 29-year-old police officer, you know about this, was deliberately shot in the head while he was doing his job. A vicious criminal left. He was a left person. He left. He was a real left, all right. And uh, the young officer, as you know, he's a young, brilliant young guy, and he's totally paralyzed. Unlike Biden, while I'm president of the United States, I will always stand with the heroes of our law enforcement. And on November 3rd, you will save America. You're talking about saving America. We cannot let this happen to our country. Because I don't know if you can ever come back from what will happen, including our Supreme Court. We're joined tonight by our terrific Republican congressional nominee, who is my complete and total endorsement. Jim, where are you, Jim? Jim Marchant. Jim Marchant. Where are you? A lot of people out there, Jim. It's not easy. Are you doing well? I just looked at a very solid poll. Jim Marchant is a great guy, and hopefully he's going to win, and you're going to carry him over, and you need it. You need it. Thank you, Jim. And also to a man that should have been governor. He should have been governor. What happened? I don't know what happened. Nevada Attorney General is a great guy, Adam Laxalt, and he's watching very closely. And I'll tell you, uh, Adam, please, he's a great lawyer, great talent, and uh, he's going places, but uh, you have to watch. He just said our next governor. I believe that's true. You have my endorsement, but I will tell you this, Adam, uh, if you could, because you're doing a fantastic job watching, watch all these uh, votes coming in on the ballots, the unsolicited ballots. Will you watch it, please? Okay. All right. You know? All right, James Settlemeyer. Where's James? James. Look at it, James. Whoa. Look at the size of James. I want you protecting me, James. It's James is good. You're doing well. I saw a good poll for you, too. I think we're all doing well. I think we're all doing well. It's like a family. Thank you, James, very much. All of you guys, thank you very much. A woman who did a fantastic job. She headed up Michigan. We won Michigan the first time in decades. Republicans won. She was horrendous. She kept calling me, sir, one more speech. Please come over. Okay, I'll do one more, Rana. Rana McDaniel. I'll do one more, Rana. One more. I do the speech. Two days later, I get a call. One more, sir. We need one more. But we ended up winning Michigan. First time in decades. Rana McDaniel. Rana. She was great. And I said, you know, when I won, I said, well, who are we going to put at the RNC? That's Republican National Committee. Who are we going to put? And I said, how about that woman that ran? She was, she was so tough. I said, how about the woman that ran Michigan that we won? First time in so many years. So thank you, Ron. A great job you're doing. We appreciate it. And another man who's doing a fantastic job, who's been a friend of mine for a long time, your GOP chair, Michael McDonald. Michael. Great job, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. How are we doing, Michael? Are we leading, I hope? Okay. I hear we're doing well. Be careful of the ballots. It's the only way we're going to lose. Can't, can't have this happen to our country. 
And also here are several really great members of a terrific association, and they like Trump a lot. The Nevada Trucking Association. Where are they? Nevada Trucking. Nevada Trucking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Thank you very much. Great job. We appreciate it very much. Those roads are going to get very nice. They're already starting. Tonight, our hearts are with all of the communities in the West battling devastating wildfires. I'm going there the day after tomorrow. I'm staying in your state tonight, but I'm going to be going to California. Spoke to the folks in Oregon, Washington. They're really having, they never had anything like this. But you know, it is about forest management. Please remember the words, very simple. Forest management, please remember. It's about forest management and other things, but forest management. My administration is closely coordinating with state and local leaders, and we want to thank the more than 200,000 people that are working on it and 28,000 firefighters and first responders who courageously and bravely are fighting out there. They are fighting, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's a rapidly spreading hundreds of thousands of acres. There's not been anything quite like this one. We've spent the last four years reversing the horrible damage Joe Biden inflicted over the past 47 years. Think of it. He's been there 47 years. And he always says, well, why didn't you do this? Why did the guy just really, you know, in all fairness, I've been here three and a half years. So it's not like they haven't been here. He was a vice president for eight years, and he only did one thing good. He treated Obama good. I was going to say something else, but they would have scolded me. I was good. That's exactly what I was going to say. But I didn't. it's better than you say it. Do you want to shout it out? Go ahead. Shout. That's what I said. That's what I was. Thank you very much. Well. Oh, this can only happen in Nevada. And we passed record tax cuts and regulation cuts to keep the family farms and ranches in the family. Nobody even knows this. We virtually eliminated the unfair estate tax, also known as the death tax. Does anyone have a small farm, medium-sized farm, or business, anybody? If you want to leave it to your children, you don't have to pay tax now because of Trump. I always say it, and I mean it. If you like your children, it's great. If you don't like your children, it doesn't mean a damn thing. Don't leave it to them. I ended the administrations, and if you look at that last administration, what they were doing on American energy, what they were doing, and now we are the world's number one energy producer by far, and we are energy independent. How about your gas prices? That's not too bad, right? You know, that's, you didn't think you'd ever see those prices, those under $2 prices, did you? Huh? Thank you, President Trump. I appreciate it, sir. <laughs> Biden has pledged to abolish the production of American oil and shale and clean coal and natural gas, and he wants to ban fracking, right? So he's in these debates with the other people, and they're just eating them alive. He did his best debate against Crazy Bernie. I, and I got to ask, why did he get better all of a sudden? What happened? Why? Do you have any idea why? I think I know. Why did he get better all of a sudden? But he did his last debate, but he was so bad, and he raised his hand, no fracking. There will be no fracking under my administration, he said. And you know why I add the word he said? Because they will take what I said, and they will put it as a commercial. There will be no fracking under my administration. They'll have, it, and they'll have me thinking. That's how dishonest these people are. So I always have to add something because, you know. But even then, sometimes they'll cut it off at the end. 
But he said there'll be no fracking under my administration. Now all of a sudden he goes to Pennsylvania and his polls aren't looking very good because they do big fracking. And he goes to Texas and he goes to Oklahoma and he goes to North Dakota and he goes to all these places. Not looking so good. All of a sudden he says, I had nothing against fracking. What are you talking about? But always follow their first instinct because the first instinct is what is going to happen. And he has to because he signed, you know, he, he has a manifesto. I call it the manifesto with Bernie and AOC plus three, you know, all these crazy people. And it's a manifesto and it reads far worse than anything Bernie Sanders ever said. You know, I thought he'd take what Bernie did and move them somewhat to the right. No, he took what Bernie said and they move way further left. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. But follow the original statements because that's what's going to happen. Whether it's on religion or on guns or on fracking or on energy or anything, that's what's going to happen. California has already implemented this extreme agenda and they are experiencing massive blackouts. You know that, California. They like wind. They like wind. Oh, darling, let's watch television. I'm sorry, darling, the wind. The wind isn't blowing tonight. We can't watch television. But I want to watch President Trump. He's on television. I want to watch him. Darling, how many times do I have to tell you the wind is not blowing tonight? And the government came and turned off all the windmills because they're killing all our bald eagles and all our birds. It's unbelievable. You want to see a bird cemetery? Walk under a windmill sometime. They pile up. It's honestly, it's terrible. Then the environmentalists say, oh, that's so wonderful. You know what? You know, when they talk about fumes, when they talk about going up, the carbon going up, take a look where they're made. They're made in China and they're made in Germany. They spew more crap into the air than anything. They can, you can run those things for 15 years and they'll never make up the difference. But here's what happens. After a certain number of years, they wear out. And did you ever see a windmill when it's shot? Like Joe? What happens? No, you know what happens to it? It starts to rust. They don't paint it. The maintenance gets bad, and then they just turn it off. Take a look at California, where they have windmills that have been, that are old. And nobody wants to take them down because there's not a lot of profit in taking them down. So they're sitting there, all rotten and rusty. It's terrible. And then I hear the environmentalists love them. Uh, it's, we got to talk to the environmentalists. I work there. And they cannot, they cannot, you know, solar. I like solar, but solar is very expensive and it doesn't have the power to, to fire up our massive plants. We have big plants, including in this great state. And you can't fire them up with this stuff. You can't fire. We need the strength because we're competing against a lot of nations and they don't go through what we do. They don't care about the air, and they should, and they should, which is another problem. You know, I took you out of that crazy Paris climate accord because it was a total disaster. No, it was a way of hurting the United States. I tell you, it would have, we would have had to close 20, 25 percent of our factories in order to even. It was so crazy, so expensive. But I took you out, and you know, I was surprised. People, most people, they appreciate what I did because you think it was easy doing that. It was actually, I thought it would be devastating. I got one day of bad press after that. Everybody forgot about it. It wasn't, wasn't that bad. But I did the right thing for our country. And we want to have our great plants working. We want to have our great plants fired up. And you know, they said manufacturing jobs are dead, right? Sleepy Joe said, I'm going to bring back manufacturing. Really? Well, Obama said you'd need a miracle 
to bring back manufacturing. I brought back 650,000 jobs. He said, you need a miracle. And now Sleepy Joe is saying that, uh, no, 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 uh, I'm going to bring back my, he's not going to bring back anything. I made history by signing an executive order, making the official policy of the United States government to buy American and to hire American. Now, I did this a long time ago. And then I see a sign in front of Joe, right here, right here. It said, buy American. Oh, great, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Where have you been for 47 years? Because for 47 years, Joe Biden did the opposite. He crushed the dreams of American workers and enriched foreign countries. That's how China happened. Hey, look what I've done. I've taken billions, tens of billions of dollars out of China. Nobody else did it before me, no other president. In all, in all fairness, in all fairness to Obama and Biden, I call him O'Biden because it's easier. O'Biden. In all fairness to O'Biden, you know, I mean, they didn't do any of that. But now I see Buy American. Hey, he also copied on the pandemic. Did you see he copied everything I was doing? Except one thing, he wouldn't have closed the country to China, so hundreds of thousands of people would have died from that. But two months, two and a half months later, he admitted that I was right. Thank you very much, Joe. I appreciate it. And yesterday, he made a, I think he made a mistake. Well, what do you think? The USMCA. What's better, that or NAFTA? Well, no, the USMCA is better. Was that Jake Tapper? I like Jake Tapper. What's that? I don't think he's doing I don't think he likes me too much, but that's okay. They said, what's better? They said, what's better? He goes, USMCA. Well, that's the deal that Trump made. Oh, it is? That's a great deal we made. We took the uh, horrible NAFTA deal. We got rid of NAFTA. We got rid of TPP. We got rid of that terrible, terrible South Korea deal, which Hillary Clinton said will produce 250,000 jobs. She said this will produce 200. She made it. Hillary, crooked Hillary. She made it. No way. She said it's going to produce 250,000 jobs, and she was 100% right. It produced 250,000 jobs for South Korea, not for us. South Korea did very well with that deal, but I changed that deal a lot. That's now a good deal. Earlier this year, I kept my promise to American workers when we ended the NAFTA nightmare and signed the brand new USMCA, Mexico-Canada agreement into law. You're not going to see companies leaving for Mexico very much anymore. They're not going to be leaving your community, going to Mexico, making a product, selling the product back in, not being taxed at the border. It doesn't work that way anymore. It's probably the biggest reason I ran for president, if you want to know the truth. And, and these endless, and these stupid endless wars. I saved the United, but that's one of the reasons Washington doesn't like me. They love those endless wars. You got to ask them why. Do you ever watch where they're very critical of me? We don't like him on foreign policy, really? Look what I've done. Look what I've done. Israel started, was signing deals all over the place. These guys that are lecturing all the time, they don't have a clue. They're clueless. They were clueless. That's why for 40 years you got nothing except blood in the sand. That's all you got, blood in the sand. I saved the U.S. auto industry by withdrawing from last administration's job-killing Trans-Pacific Partnership. I took the toughest ever action to stand up to China's rampant theft of American jobs. They don't like me too much. Joe Biden's agenda is made in China. My agenda is made in the USA. That's the way it is.
For the last four years, I've been delivering for our incredible Hispanic. I love the Hispanic community. Oh, there was a poll today. Did you see it? Did you see the poll? Oh, this was a biggie. They had a poll today that with the Hispanic voter, they call them Latino, Hispanic. They use different terms to me. I just love the people. I don't care. But, but let me just, did you see it? Trump is leading Biden with the Hispanic community. Trump is leading Biden. Well, Hispanics like, Hispanics like tough people. They like people that are going to produce jobs. They like, and by the way, the Hispanics understand the border better than anybody else. They are better than anybody else. No, but we're being, you know, it's unusual that a Republican would be leading a Democrat. Not for, it's, it's habit. You know what the problem is? Habit. But the Hispanics get it. And we're leading it with the Hispanic community. And that's because you had the lowest job numbers in the history of our country. You had the best homeownership. Every, every statistic was the best. And now we're doing it again, except we're doing it very rapidly. Remember, 8.4%? We could have been at 44% if stupid people ran it. 8.4%. I'm fighting for school choice, safe neighborhoods, low taxes, and regulations on Hispanic-owned small businesses. We're fighting. You know, the Hispanic-owned small businesses, they're great business people. I know it from being in business. They were very tough. They were great business people, and they get it. They get it like very few people get it. I'm also standing up for religious liberty. Joe Biden would be... So Joe Biden would be a disaster for all communities, not just the Hispanic community. He's pledged to wage attacks on Catholic organizations like the Little Sisters of the Poor that we're helping, and we're winning with them. We're helping them. They got hit so hard by oh, Biden. They got hit so hard. I remember them in the Supreme Court, the Little Sisters of the Poor. They get hit by Biden, and then he says how wonderful. He's such a wonderful person. He supports taxpayer-funded extreme late-term abortion. And I mean ninth month, ninth month, ninth month. And he'd allow violent mobs to burn down your business, and he would hand your country over to the socialists. But I believe it's worse than socialists. I do. I think it's a, a step worse than socialists. And it starts with a C. That is why we're going to win a record share of the Hispanic vote in November. It's so important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so important. We're bringing it back very fast. I think next year's next year, I believe, will be as good or better than the year we had last year. And unless somebody comes in and decides to quadruple your taxes, then I can't. Then all bits are off. But uh, we're going to have, we're lowering taxes. He's raising taxes. We're going to have tremendous growth. Joe Biden's party continues to attack our incredible border agents. They're incredible people, more than half of whom happen to be Hispanic Americans. Did you know that? I know all of them. Jose, how are you doing? Juan, how are you doing? Every once, like every sixth time, I'd say, hello, Jim, how are you? These extraordinary patriots deserve our admiration, gratitude, and respect, not 
Joe Biden's contempt. He's got contempt for these people that are so great and brave. That's a tough job. My administration's achieved the most secure border in American history. We ended the catch and release disaster. Remember, you catch somebody. What's your name? I don't know. What's your address? I don't know. Okay, go into our country. That's okay. You couldn't arrest anybody. We ended it, stopped asylum fraud, and we've deported over 20,000 gang members, including MS-13. And over a half a million criminal illegal aliens. Now think about it. Think of that number. Think if you had a half a million people spread throughout the country that were criminal illegal aliens. Some of these are very violent people. And we get them the hell out. We're stopping human trafficking, protecting the victims, most of whom are women. Most of whom are women. Human trafficking, because of the internet, that's a tremendously big and horrible business. These are the worst human beings of all. But most of these, uh, most of the victims are women. Children to a much lesser extent, but women. And human traffickers, and you know what made it that way is the internet. Who would think? It almost sounds like an ancient crime. It's not. It's very modern because of the internet, because of the computer. And it's a horrible thing, and we've stopped so much of it. We have an incredible group of people that go after these animals. And we've built now over 320 miles of border wall and are adding 10 new miles a week. And the wall will very soon be finished. It'll be finished. We've invested $2.5 trillion in the U.S. military. We've rebuilt our depleted. It was a depleted military. Now we have the newest, we have the best we've ever had and launched the first new branch of the United States Armed Forces in nearly 75 years, the U.S. Space Force. And we did things that people said couldn't be done after 52 years. We passed VA choice and VA accountability. And 91% of our veterans now approve of their VA care. They think it's doing, it's doing great. The fact is, I did more in 47 months as president than Joe Biden did in 47 years. It's true. It's true. I withdrew from last administration's disastrous Iran nuclear deal. We killed the founder and leader of ISIS, al-Baghdadi. We eliminated the world's number one terrorist and mass murder of American troops, Qasim Soleimani. He's dead. He's gone. Biden voted for the Iraq war. He opposed the mission to take out Osama bin Laden. He opposed killing Soleimani. He oversaw the rise of ISIS. And he cheered the rise of China as a very positive development. Oh, really? Tell me about it. Uh, tell me about it. Not too positive. Joe Biden has been on the wrong side of history for 47 years. In fact, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense said about him, he's never called it right. He never called it right. If we had listened to Joe, hundreds of thousands more Americans would right now have died. When the virus arrived, we launched the largest national mobilization since World War II. You know that, especially with ventilators and equipment and masks and shields. We're delivering life-saving therapies that have achieved among the lowest case fatality rates of any major country in the world. And you don't hear that from the fake news. Europe's excess mortality rate is 24% higher. And these are statistics that come from people that do this stuff, right? 
This is not done by my uh, secretary. 24% higher than the United States, and despite their punitive lockdowns, they're once again seeing a spike. They're seeing a big spike in cases over there. They did the heavy lockdowns, just like you're doing right here, and they're seeing a spike, and there's no reason for that. The United States has experienced the smallest contraction of any major Western nation. Think of that. And by far, the fastest recovery. And if they wrote about it properly, it would be a proper thing. It would be a proper thing to do. Through our historic relief programs, we've saved more than half a trillion Nevada cops and jobs and all of this, yet so many people going out. We've saved 42,000 Nevada businesses. Think of that. Biden would terminate this comeback. He wants to end it. He would terminate this comeback. He would put your families in danger. He will totally destroy Social Security. And in my opinion, if you look at what he's going to do to Medicare, he will, they will destroy Social Security. They will, you called it. You know what you're talking about. Exactly right. He's going to massively raise your taxes, reimpose crippling federal regulations, destroy your Social Security, and destroy protections for pre-existing conditions. He's going to destroy that and decimate your 401ks and retirement savings and stocks. Your stocks are going to go down like uh, you never saw anything go down before. He'll obliterate your Second Amendment. He'll give you, and he would, he would give free, he wants to give free health care to illegal aliens. That'll bankrupt Medicare. He wants to give. Well, you saw him raise his hand. Remember the debate where they're all standing there and he looked around. Who's going to give free health care to illegal aliens? And everyone's raising hands. He's going, oh, oh. No, take a look. I'm not kidding. It's sad. It's, it's pathetic. He would end our travel bans on jihadist regions and increase refugee admissions 700 percent, opening the floodgates to terror-afflicted nations. You understand that? He'll establish a national sanctuary city policy for criminal illegal aliens. He loves sanctuary cities, meaning the people that control him love sanctuary cities. Biden pledges to oppose school choice, and he has stated that if he is elected, charter schools are, quote, gone. They're gone. In the second term, and we've already started it very heavily, I will provide school choice to every parent in America. A vote for Republicans is a vote for safe communities, great jobs, and a limitless future for all Americans. Instead of letting Washington change us, despite all that we've been through, and we've been through more than any president has ever been through with these characters, and they're falling one after another, but you do notice that, I hope. One after another. Oh, I see. The phones have been wiped out. I wonder what that's all about. But that's a criminal thing you did. We are changing Washington. We are changing Washington. Never forget that they're coming after me because I am fighting for you. And it's true. Over the next four years, to conclude, we will make America into the manufacturing superpower of the world. And we will end our reliance on China once and for all. We will make our medical supplies right here in the United States. We will rapidly return to full employment, soaring economies, and a record prosperity even greater than last year.
We will hire more police, increase penalties for assaults on law enforcement, surge federal prosecutors into high crime communities, and ban sanctuary cities. We will appoint prosecutors, judges, justices, and believe we will believe in enforcing the law. We want law and order. We have to have it. We will ensure equal justice for citizens of every race, color, religion, and creed. We will defend the dignity of work and the sanctity of life. We will uphold religious liberty, free speech, and the right to keep and bear arms. We will strike down terrorists who threaten our citizens, and we will keep America out of endless foreign wars. And we are bringing our troops home as we speak tonight. We will maintain America's unrivaled military might, and we will ensure peace through strength. We will end surprise medical billing, require price transparency. It's already signed, starts on January 1st. I don't want anyone to, I don't, that was a big deal. I don't want Sleepy Joe to take care of, you know, can you imagine? I'll be watching. Prices have dropped substantially all throughout the country because of prices. And I'm the one that got it done. And he'll say, what did I do? What did I do? How did this happen? And we'll further reduce health insurance premiums and the cost of prescription drugs. We just did favored nations. We're going to come down to the lowest price anywhere in the world because we did a favored nations clause. You know what that is. We will. The drug companies don't exactly like me too much. They're spending millions of dollars on negative commercials. Please understand, when you see those commercials, it means your drug prices are coming down. We will strongly protect Medicaid and Social Security, which they will give up, and we will always protect patients with pre-existing conditions. And America will land the first woman on the moon, and the United States will be the first nation to land an astronaut on Mars. We will stop the radical indoctrination of our students and restore patriotic education to our schools. And we will teach our children to love our country, honor our history, and always respect our great American flag. And we will live by the timeless words of our national motto, In God We Trust. For years, you had a president who apologized for America. Now you have a president who is standing up for America and standing up for the people of Nevada. So very importantly, get your friends, get your family, get your neighbors, get your co-workers, and get out and vote on November 3rd. From Carson City to Elko, from Las Vegas to Reno, and from Clark County to right here in Douglas County. We stand on the shoulders of red-blooded American patriots who poured out their heart, sweat, and soul to secure our liberty. They want to secure our liberty, think of it, and defend our freedom. 
Nevada was founded by pioneers and prospectors, miners and cowboys, innovators and trailblazers, tough people, great people, who tamed the frontier, raised up the mighty Hoover Dam, lit up the brilliant lights of the Vegas Strip, and transformed a sprawling desert into a shining oasis. So true. Our American ancestors made this into the greatest nation ever to exist on the face of the earth, and we are making it greater than it ever has been. We are making it greater than ever before. We are making it greater than it's ever been. Proud citizens like you helped build this country, and together we are taking back our country. We are returning power to you, the American people. With your help, your devotion, and your drive, we are going to keep on working, we are going to keep on fighting, and we are going to keep on winning, winning, winning. We are one movement, one people, one family, and one glorious nation under God. And together with the incredible people of Nevada, we will make America wealthy again. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. enjoyed that speech from President Donald Trump. Today is September 12, 2020. That was in Reno. The air was pretty yucky, but the speech was awesome once again. And next, we're going to go to the president who, back on September 11, 2020, he had some remarks on the historic Bahrain-Israel deal. And I want you to hear about that because the media obviously is not going to play that or talk about it uh, unless it goes bad. So, Here is Trump's speech from that. Thank you very much. Just a few moments ago, I hosted a historic call between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel and King Hamad al-Khalifa of Bahrain. Both leaders expressed their condolences as well to uh, the American people on this very, very tragic, horrible event that took place on September 11th. And uh, they very much meant it. I want to thank them for that. There's no more powerful response to the hatred that spawned 9-11 than the agreement that we're about to tell you. You will hear something today that's, I think, very, very important for not only the Middle East, but for the world. In the spirit of peace and cooperation, both leaders also agreed that Bahrain will fully normalize its diplomatic relations with Israel. They will exchange embassies and ambassadors, begin direct flights between their countries, and launch cooperation initiatives across a broad range of sectors, including health, business, technology, education, security, and agriculture. This is a truly historic day. 
There had been two peace agreements with Israel in the last 72 years. This is now the second peace agreement that we've announced in the last month. And I am very hopeful that there will be more to follow. I can tell you there's tremendous enthusiasm on behalf of other countries to also join. And we think ultimately you'll have most countries join and you're going to have the Palestinians uh, in a very good position. They want to come in. They're going to want to come in because all of their friends are in. But we have tremendous enthusiasm for coming into the deal. I want to thank the group of very talented people behind me, and you're going to be hearing from them in a second. But it's just a very historic day, a very important day, and so interesting that it's on 9-11. It's, uh, it's such a great uh, time. We didn't know this was going to happen in terms of the timing, but it did happen, and uh, we're very honored by it. When I took office, the Middle East was in a state of absolute chaos. I've restored trust with our regional partners, and together we've eliminated the ISIS caliphate 100 percent, isolated the radicals who pervert Islam and so instability. Today, nations across the region and throughout the world are joining together, united in their determination to build a better future, free from the evils which perpetuate terror. And I think you see that. I think you see that happening very, very strongly. I also spoke with King Solomon of Saudi Arabia, and we talked about this. And uh, he is uh, he's a great gentleman, and what they've done in terms of fighting terror is a much different ballgame than it was before we attained this office. The fact is that uh, Saudi Arabia was doing things that they're not doing anymore, and so are other countries and neighbors. They are doing things that they just uh, would never have done their uh, their levels and their uh, all of the things, all of the many, many uh, elements of uh, fighting and hate, they seem to be evaporating. And we'll find out very soon, but they seem to be evaporating. So things are happening in the Middle East that nobody thought was even possible to think about. And that's what's going on right now. Bahrain has agreed to join Israel and the United Arab Emirates for, and by the way, I want to thank Mohammed, who is a, a great leader, a truly great leader, at the White House on Tuesday. So they'll be here on Tuesday for the signing of the Abraham Accords. The significance of the signing will be elevated from an already historic breakthrough to one representing a previously unthinkable regional transformation. And that's exactly what it is. It's unthinkable that this could happen and so fast. And as you know, when we did the original signing with, and which will actually take place in terms of official on Tuesday, United Arab Emirates, people thought that was uh, amazing. And now they're hearing this, and they're also hearing from other countries because they understand that other countries want to very much come in. On this occasion, I want to thank the leaders of Israel and Bahrain for their vision and courage to forge this historic agreement. Their leadership is proving that the future can be filled with hope and does not need to be predetermined by conflicts of the past. Uh, you know all about the conflicts of the past. They're very legendary. There was a lot of problems going on, but we've been able to work things out to a level that nobody thought possible. This is really something very special, very, very special. As more countries normalize relations with Israel, which will happen quite quickly, we believe,
The region will become more and more stable, secure, and prosperous. In the meantime, we're pulling most of our soldiers out. So we're doing it the opposite way. They were doing it with nothing but fighting and blood all over the place. The sand was loaded up with blood. And now you're going to see that a lot of that sand is going to be loaded up with peace. The United States will continue to stand with the people of the region and work with them and build a brighter and much more hopeful future. So we're very proud of this. And uh, as time goes by, I think you'll see more and more why. I think most of you realize how important it is. Even the New York Times was very generous in their praise of the original deal. And they never thought, I think nobody thought this was going to happen so quickly after the first. But they'll both be here on Tuesday. They're going to be signing. Benjamin Netanyahu will be here. Prime Minister will be here, Israel. And uh, we look forward to that. Uh, Just on this deal, because of the importance of the deal, we'll take some questions. But first, I'd like to ask Jared to say a few words, and Mike Pence to say a few words, and some of the folks. David, I'd like you to say something about it, because it's so historic, and these people have worked so hard and so long on it. This is really the culmination of a long period of time, let's put it that way. I don't want to say how long, but it's been — it's a long period of time. It's a great thing. Jared, please. Thank you, Mr. President. And first, I want to thank you for your leadership on this issue. Your first foreign trip was to Saudi Arabia, where you outlined a vision for the region. And all of the promises you made on that trip and all of the things that you foreshadowed have occurred. It's been a strategy that you've stuck with, and I want to thank you for uh, giving uh, me the trust and confidence that you've given me in order to work on this uh, file over the last years. And, and I think the results that we've achieved has been beyond anyone's uh, expectations, and I believe that there's even more to come. Uh, I just returned from the region last week. I was in the Middle East where uh, I took the first commercial flight that's ever flown from Israel to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, That flight flew over Saudi Arabian airspace. It was the first time in 72 years that Saudi Arabia has now waived their airspace uh, to allow commercial flights to fly from Israel back and forth. Bahrain then did the same thing. The United Arab Emirates waived a 48-year boycott on Israel, which was an incredible development. And there are now delegations moving throughout the Middle East, figuring out how to bring the people closer together. Um, What President Trump has done here is unthinkable. He's brought people in the Middle East together. There's been these barriers that have existed that have led to so much instability, uh, so much war, so much loss, so much hopelessness, and we're seeing so much hopefulness now coming. And I I will say something that uh, I never thought would be the case, which is that on this last trip, the amount of optimism that has happened that we're experiencing in the Middle East is truly incredible. So uh, I just want to congratulate you. I want to congratulate the people of Israel. I want to congratulate Uh, the people from the Kingdom of Bahrain. I want to thank their tremendous leadership. And I also uh, want to congratulate the people of the Middle East because the first deal that you were able to accomplish was so popular that things are really starting to move in in a really strong direction. And this makes America safer. It allows us to to bring our troops home and it allows us to uh, work on bringing prosperity to American communities. So really, thank you for your leadership. Congratulations on this great success. Great job. Thank you very much, Jerry. Mike, please. Mr. President, I can think of no more fitting tribute to the heroes that were forged on this day 19 years ago and all the heroes that were forged on battlefields ever since than to see this peace agreement announced today. And Mr. President, I 
you said from early on that we could stand with Israel and we could stand for peace. Your very first foreign trip was to the Arab world to reach out to create new alliances. You affirmed our support for Israel when you moved the American embassy to Jerusalem. And the strength with which you have approached this has made now this second historic peace agreement possible. And I just want to I want to congratulate you and thank you Mr. President for your leadership. I also want to I want to thank uh, the people of the Kingdom of Bahrain and the people of Israel for finding a way forward to begin to take one more step toward peace in the Middle East and to know that in this president and in the American people they will have an ally with us. The good book says blessed are the peacemakers. And Mr. President, I just want to congratulate you. I want to congratulate Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and King Hamed of Bahrain on bringing peace between their nations and widening the reach of peace in the world. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank you very much, Mike. Great. Uh, our wonderful ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, who has been uh, really something. He's been, uh, I put him there, I knew him for a long time. He was one of the most successful lawyers in the country by far. And uh, at least based on his paycheck, I can tell you that. <laughs> and uh, he's a great lawyer, he's a great talent, and a great deal maker. And I put him there for a reason. I put him there to get it done. I said, just don't be a regular ambassador like so many are. Just get it done. See if you can bring peace to the Middle East. David, please. Thank you, Mr. President. And I will always be indebted to you for giving me that honor. It's one that I, I hold extremely uh, dear. Well, as you know, Mr. President, people have thought about the Middle East for the past hundred years or more as a place of violence, of hopelessness, of suffering, of war. What we're seeing real-time in this room today and uh, last month, we're seeing the paradigm of the Middle East completely change. The world is turning in a very positive way, and um, it's all because, if I may say, because of the policy that you began in May of 2017 of trusting our allies, of empowering our allies, and in my case, of course, of being the greatest friend that Israel has ever had, uh, of putting people on the job who share those values and convictions, and um, the fruit is now being born in this incredible peace agreement. Your policy of peace through strength has changed the world profoundly for the better, and I'm, as the ambassador to Israel, I am eternally grateful for the changes that you have made uh, for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Thank you, David. Great job. Thank you. Avi, please. Oh, thank you, Mr. President. Uh, congratulations. He looks young. He's very smart. Thank you, Mr. President. Congratulations on just a tremendous, historic um, you know, uh, achievement here today. I think I just speak for everybody in this room, all of my colleagues who've worked uh, in your administration, that thanks to your leadership, there's just a tremendous sense of pride to be an American to work on, on these issues under your leadership. And I, I'm just so appreciative to you and so honored to, to be part of your team. So thank, thank you. Mr. President, I think historians will look back on these two peace agreements as the beginning of the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And you talked about the journey to get here. And I remember uh, I heard you pledge when you were in Riyadh 
and when you were in Israel. You pledged that you would strengthen America's friendships and to build new partnerships in the pursuit of peace. And you kept that promise, and we see that very clearly today. Rather than appeasing America's adversaries in the region, you recruited America's allies. And you focused on shared interests and shared threats. But you also asked them to shoulder their part of the burden and to fulfill their end of the obligation. Nations rallied behind it. And as a consequence, uh, the foundation has now been laid for great things in the coming years. Great. Well said. Thank you very much. Would you have anything to say? Mr. President, uh, on behalf of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, thank you for your bold leadership and Sheikh Mohammed's bold leadership, Prime Minister Netanyahu's bold leadership, King Hamid's bold leadership, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed again. Uh, your bold leadership, what we've tried for the last hundred years, has not worked. Uh, I think it's very fitting that on September 11th, we honor those special operators that we buried and lost uh, with, with peace. And this is a way to beat terrorism at the end of the day. So we're honored and privileged, and thank you for your leadership. Well, I had a lot of bad thinking, a lot of bad concepts, a lot of things that I never thought were going to work. These were the ones that we were relying on to make the deals, and they wasted 35 years. They wasted many, many years. And they're the ones that have been critical of us, and look what's happening. Now they're all of a sudden saying, I think they made a mistake. They're all saying that about themselves. So I just want to thank this group uh, in particular for staying here and helping us out and uh, doing things that nobody thought could have happened. And under the old concepts of national defense or whatever, uh, category you want to put it under. Uh, it That wasn't working, and it was never going to work. And we changed things around very drastically, and then we started to negotiate. And the good news, and I look at David because you know it, you see it, you hear it. The good news is we have many other countries now in the Middle East that want to be in this, and that means peace, because they're tired of fighting. You know, they can fight, and they're all great fighters, and they're warriors. But even great warriors get tired of fighting, and they're tired of fighting. And I can see things positively happening with Iran, ultimately. I think that can all work out very well. And I think that uh, so many great things are going to happen. And then we can also discuss the Palestinians. I think the Palestinians are going to end up doing something that's going to be very smart for them. And all their friends are coming into this, and they want to come into it. They want to come into it very badly. And I can see a lot of good things happening with respect to the Palestinians, which would be really wonderful, whether you were on their side or not on their side. People want to see it all brought to an end and brought to an end quickly. So that's going to be very important. But this is a very historic day. Would anybody else like to say anything? Please, go, please. Mr. President, I just want to thank you and, and Ambassador O'Brien uh, for giving me the opportunity to serve on the National Security Council staff and be part of something uh, historic and be part of a team. Um, uh, Avi and Jared are tremendous leaders, and the opportunity to work with them to do something important has been the highlight of my life. And thank you for letting me do that, sir. And you've been doing this for a long time. You never saw anything like this, right? <laughs> <laughs> little, we take a little bit of a different approach. Sir. Anybody? Please, come on, my friend. Mr. President, uh, 19 years ago today, my father and I almost got caught in the crosshairs of that first jet that hit the uh, Twin Towers. That event changed the course of my life. It led me to uh, become a United States Marine which led to other things that uh, brought me uh, through a strange path uh, here. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I want to thank you for the leadership you've shown. 
I, Walter Russell Mead recently wrote, uh, he was quoting Churchill, who once said he got a bowl of pudding. He said, take it away, it has no theme. There's now a theme emerging in the Middle East. And uh, the, it is the theme of what is possible from peace through strength, from not appeasing uh, our enemies and, and holding our allies and friends close. So uh, congratulations, sir. Thank you very much. And this is a very, very big day. Very, very big day. Would you like to say something? Yes, sir. Like, uh, like Matt uh, and many others, 19 years ago, uh, within a month of the attacks on 9-11, I and others were conducting operations in Afghanistan. Uh, as General Correa pointed out, it's a privilege to be in different historic circumstances today, to be part of a tremendous team with an outstanding leadership. All of it possible, sir, because of your vision, because of your leadership and the relationships of everyone in this room. It's an enormous opportunity. Uh, it's something that no one can imagine, but it's an enormous privilege, and I'll always be grateful for it. So congratulations to you, sir, and thank you to you and everyone else here. Well, it is an honor to have worked with all of you. You're really talented people, incredible, and you are willing to be flexible. The word flexible is a very important word because we weren't going by the old standards and norms. We were going by standards that can get things done, but not only get them done, get them done in a much better way. And uh, this is just the beginning. A lot of things are happening, and they're happening very quickly. People want to be involved, and they want to be involved for the first time, I think, some of you have told me the first time ever that you've ever seen anything like this, where they're rushing into an agreement, they want to be involved. They're tired of fighting, as I said. They're tired of fighting, no matter how they are, no matter how great a warrior they are. And you have some great warriors. I know most of them. But uh, it's time. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Please. and taking a few steps back here, back to September 9th of 2020. The White House press secretary held a press conference, a press briefing, and you can only imagine how that went. I feel bad for Kaylee, but really I feel bad for the people that try to challenge her. So here is the press secretary. Hello, everyone. Today, President Trump was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in recognition of his work in brokering an Israel-United Arab Emirates peace deal. It was a historic deal and the first such deal in over two decades. This is a hard-earned and well-deserved honor for this president. President Trump's foreign policy will always be one of peace through strength, and that is what the American people are seeing abroad. Career politicians merely talk about the kind of results this president has achieved on the world stage. End endless wars, we hear that often. Not too often do we see it actually done. Today, uh, the president and the Pentagon, the Department of Defense are announcing a drawdown of troops in Iraq, just announced from 5,200 to 3,000. We are getting our allies to pay their fair share. Now nine NATO countries are meeting their 2% spending obligations. We've secured better trade deals for the American worker. President Trump negotiated the USMCA, the US-South Korea deal, ended the Trans-Pacific Partnership, brought back manufacturing jobs. President Trump has stood up to China. The phase one China deal, uh, also tariffs to hold China accountable and actions to block Huawei. President Trump's also defeated terrorists. The ISIS caliphate is destroyed. Al-Baghdadi is no longer on the battlefield, along with Iranian General Soleimani. In addition to these priorities, President Trump has made peace a cornerstone of his recent foreign policy efforts. 
The peace deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates led to the first flight from Israel over Saudi Arabia's airspace to the United Arab Emirates. The signing ceremony for this historic deal will be September 15th at the White House. President Trump has also brokered economic normalization between Serbia and Kosovo, a major breakthrough in this decades-old conflict. It's a fact. President Trump has broken the 39-year-old streak of American presidents either starting a war or bringing the United States into an international armed conflict, as a great Washington Examiner piece headline read. These wins are possible because of the president's leadership and outsider perspective. President Trump addresses old challenges with new solutions and delivers results for the American people. And with that, I'll take questions. Paula. Haley, thank you. I'd like to ask you about the Woodward interviews. Did President Trump intentionally mislead the American people about the threat of COVID, a pandemic that has now cost the lives of nearly 200,000 Americans? Absolutely not. Um, this president, at a time when you're facing insurmountable challenges, it's important to express confidence. It's important to express calm. Is play it down. Is playing it down. Is that is that expressing calm? It seems dishonest. It seems. Can like you read lie. the rest of the quote? That's how much they put in there. Oh, you excluded the last part. Um, we'll play the whole thing on 60 please, minutes. Please, on do, do you deny please do explain. Please, of course I deny that. Pandemic. And he makes clear that he doesn't want to see chaos, by the way, is the second part of the quote, which you failed to read. Um, the president, just days after having this discussion um, with Bob Woodward, said this from this podium on March 30th. He said, I do want them to stay calm. We are doing a great job. If you look at the individual statements, they're all true. Stay calm. Um, it will go away, but it's important to stay calm. So this president does what leaders do, good leaders. It's stay calm and resolute at a time when you face an insurmountable challenge. That's what this president has It will not appear that the president lied to the American public about the threat posed by COVID. The president has never lied to the American public on COVID. The president's been very, the president was expressing calm and his actions reflect that. Uh, on January 6th, uh, the CDC issued a Wuhan travel notice before any confirmed U.S. cases, among another a number of other actions. And I'd refer you to Dr. Fauci, who said that this president has an impressive response. I can't imagine under any circumstance that anyone could be doing anything more. That is the record of this president. John. Kelly, but how, do you, how do you square the, the president's words to Woodward when he said this is a very delicate one. It's also more deadly than even your strenuous flu. This is deadly stuff. And then just two weeks after he told Woodward that, he said this is a flu. This is like a flu. Um, and of course, he also said it was going to quickly go to zero. But that, that, that seems to be in direct contradiction to what he told Woodward. Well, the president was listening to his medical experts because you also have at the same time period Dr. Fauci, who said this, um, asking, asked if the seasonal flu was a bigger concern. He said this on February 17th. So right now at the same time, people are worrying about going to a Chinese restaurant. The threat is that we have in this country, we're having a pretty bad influenza season, particularly dangerous for our children. So he was reflecting that point. And again, days later, in a briefing, he said, the statements I made are this, I want to keep the country calm. That is what leaders do, and that's what President Trump does. But that statement, Fauci's not comparing the two. He's not saying coronavirus is, it was like a he was at, It was a COVID interview, and he was asked about seasonal flu vis-a-vis -vis COVID, saying exactly what the president said. And in fact, the president was taking it more seriously because on the tape, he noted uh, that flu could be worse, and he was taking action to address it. Um, once again, context matters that zero reported COVID cases, the CDC was implementing public health screenings. House Dems were preparing to
to file their first briefs in impeachment. One reported case, CDC, um, when there was one reported case, the CDC was activating an emergency operations center while Pelosi was releasing a statement criticizing McConnell over impeachment. On January 31st, the president issued a travel ban um, on China, one that the former vice president called xenophobic. That's what Democrats were doing while this president was acting, and his actions reflect the seriousness with which he took COVID-19. Yes, Jeff. You quoted Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci is also apparently on the record saying of President Trump that his attention span is like a minus number and his sole purpose is to get reelected. That's according to veteran journalist Bob Woodward. I think the bottom line here is that the president, by his own admission in private, on the record, acknowledged the depth of this crisis and yet told the American people something very different. How is that at its core not an abject betrayal of the public trust? The president has always been clear-eyed with the American people. He was always clear-eyed about the lives we could lose. Uh, again, from this podium, he acknowledged that this was serious back in March, that 100,000, 200,000 lives could be lost. Um, and with regard to Dr. Fauci, you're referring to a quote he allegedly told Bob Woodward, and I can give you quotes that we can all play on loop and video of him saying that this response was impressive, and he can't imagine anyone under any circumstance doing anything better. Uh, Dr. Fauci saying this, I can just tell you the president, uh, the first and only time I went and said, you need to do mitigation strongly, the response was, yes, we will do it. The second time I went with Dr. Burks to the president and said 15 days to slow the spread are not enough. We need to go to 30 days. Obviously, there were a lot of people who had problems with that because of potential secondary effects. Nonetheless, the president went with the health recommendations. So there's a long litany of praise from Dr. Fauci, and you're referencing something he allegedly told Bob Woodward. It's, it's on tape. It's on tape, Kaylee. Well, I'm reading, I'm reading to you what Dr. Fauci has said very publicly for all to see, and we can all play those video clips. I can get them in your inbox. Yes, Trump see. Deadly stuff about coronavirus in private, on the record. In public, though, February 28th, he says, one day, it's like a miracle, it will disappear. Well, it's, one it's, one, it's one thing to, as a, as a public figure, not to try to incite panic. It's a very different thing, respectfully, uh, to lie and mislead the American people uh, about, no was, uh, about a crisis no one, that has claimed nearly 200,000 American no lives. No one is lying to the American people. One day COVID will go away. I think we can all hope for that day. Uh, we will have a vaccine because of this president tearing through bureaucracy to get a safe and effective vaccine. One day it will go away. That is a fact. It is not inciting fear. This president has expressed calmness from this podium, mobilized the greatest mobilization of the private sector since World War II, uh, got more tests than any country in the world on COVID, a vaccine, which by the way, it'll be a record for a novel pathogen. The timing of this vaccine, should we get it by the end of the year or should we get it even three years, which was the timing of Ebola? This president has done an unprecedented job dealing with COVID and one that Dr. Fauci even acknowledged. And like I said, I will get you that clip to your inbox. Yes. You mentioned a few minutes ago that this was an insurmountable problem. I think that that's a, quite a point of dispute. If you look around the world, the United States leads the world in, in for cases in, in deaths from COVID-19. So doesn't the president have bare responsibility for that record as well as the testing and, and the vaccine development that you're just talking about? No, when you've looked at the rest of the world, um, in particular, the case fatality rate in the United States is about 3%. Uh, the world is 3.3%, the UK 11 0.9%, France 8.8%, Belgium 11.2%, and um, you can go through the various Western world countries that have dealt with COVID, and we've done a very good job. The case fatality rate notes that, and that's a testament to our therapeutics that the president has navigated. The, US is still, is still, course, the case fatality rate is the metric that shows how well our response has done with therapeutics, and we are leading the world um, in having the lowest 
case fatality rate. It's a very important metric and one that's a testament once again to a president who ripped through barriers, getting us from desivir convalescent plasma and other very good working therapeutics. You mentioned the president is very focused on the response there. Then why did the president have thousands of people, many not wearing masks at a, at a rally last night in, you know, in, in a state that has limited outdoor gatherings to 50 people? Why is he going to Nevada this, this weekend to hold similar outdoor rallies? Uh, the gathering of these large numbers uh, of people in violation of his administration's own guidance and of the best advice and guidance of local officials who he has said should have the final say in these matters. People have a First Amendment right, if they so choose, to show up and express their political opinion in the form of a peaceful protest, which is what um, the president held. And there's a real double standard here. CNN had on a guest, uh, apparently a doctor, uh, Rob Davidson, who said, now true, there are social distancing issues with regard to the protest we've seen around the country. However, this is a public health crisis. They are marching against systemic racism. So if you're allowed to march in aggregate um, in those protests, you are also allowed to show up at a political rally. You have a First Amendment right in this country. Have a responsibility um, how can the president bear no responsibility for the 200, almost 200,000 lives lost when he downplayed the virus initially and he knew that it, how contagious and deadly it was? I don't understand how that can... The president never downplayed the virus. Once again, the president expressed calm. Uh, the president was serious about this when Democrats were pursuing their sham impeachment. Uh, he was expressing calm and he was taking early action and his actions are reflective of how seriously he the, took the, COVID. The tact that he took, the language that he used, no, you, you said that he used hopeful language. Does, does he regret that given where we are now? No, this president embodied the American spirit that when we face a challenge, a crisis, a pandemic, uh, we come together, we can be optimistic, we can be serious about it, we can take it seriously with our actions, which is exactly what this president does. It's why we lead the world in testing, uh, doing far more than the number two, which is India. He took this seriously, but he still expressed calm. Uh, our food supply chains were at risk, that we could not have mass runs on grocery stores. Uh, the markets, um, also the economy, was in play here. Um, we didn't want to, there to be a huge crash and panic. He expressed calmness from this podium, but he has always taken it seriously. And the response, an unprecedented response, really reflects that. Yes. Thanks, Kaylee. Um, I wanted to ask you about the AstraZeneca trial. So does that throw a spanner in the works that they've halted those trials in terms of getting a vaccine quickly? And, uh, and then I have a follow-up. Yeah, so the AstraZeneca um, paused their trials. Um, phase three clinical trial um, was a routine response when they when you see an adverse um, effect. And it was one that shows that the science is guiding the way here. Um, and when there was an adverse response that was identified in one individual, AstraZeneca chose to, pa to pause that phase three clinical trial. There are still two American vaccines in phase three clinical trials showing great promise. Um, but, you know, AstraZeneca, what is happening there is showing that the science is guiding the way on a vaccine, which is what Dr. Dr. Fauci, um, others like Alex Azar and the president have said all along. Are you still confident that you'll see a vaccine sort of before the end of the year? By the end of the year is the goal, yes. So because there was some discussion about seeing something around the time of the election, so do you think it delays that? Our timing is not about the election, it is about saving lives, and by the end of the year has always been our goal. But of course, um, a safe and effective vaccine, we will take it as quickly as we can get it. So uh, the Customs and Border Protection was supposed to be announcing or said that they would announce a ban on, on imports of many products from Xinjiang province in China. 
uh, as a result of the human rights abuses there against the Uyghurs. That announcement hasn't come formally. It was supposed to be announced here at the White House. Are you intending to make that announcement, or has there been some backlash against just the breadth of it? It, it does it does encompass quite a lot of different products, including tomato products that you know. Yeah, I, I have no upcoming announcements about how we'll publicly um, talk about that discussion, but if I get more information, I'll let you know. Yes. Can I Nevada, please? Sure. It's my understanding that the two rallies this weekend in Nevada have been canceled because of Governor Sisolak's order preventing events of 50 people or more. Does the president have a reaction? And what is the White House policy about complying with the state's orders limiting the size of an event. I have not heard that about the rallies, but I'd refer you to the campaign uh, for further information on that. But um, as I discussed um, with Zeke here, that we believe that if people want to show up um, and express their political views, that's their choice to do so. We hand out masks. We encourage um, individuals to wear those masks. A lot of people did. I was in North Carolina last night and saw it. Uh, we give out hand sanitizer, but at the end of the day, if you want to join a peaceful protest, you can do so. Um, and there's no, um, there's no reason, just like the protests we've seen in the streets, you can't show up and express your political view at a rally. Yes. Haley, um, can you give us some understanding about why the president agreed to sit down with Bob Woodward for 18 interviews when his first book about the administration was so deeply critical? Because he's the most transparent president in history. When, um, when do you expect that we'll get the list, the short list of who the president is considering for the SCOTUS picks, and what's the criteria that he's using to assemble that list? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you'll get that list in short order. Um, the president is very excited uh, to share who he would nominate uh, to the Supreme Court, and what will guide um, his choices are people who follow the Constitution. He wants Constitution-abiding judges. He wants textualists um, who believe the words of the statue actually are what they are, not subject to interpretation. He wants judges guided by the Constitution, um, judges um, in the ilk um, of the two that he's nominated, like Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Yes. Thanks, Kelly. Um, did the president or anyone at the White House have conversations with the Department of Justice about their decision to intervene in the Eugene Carroll lawsuit? And if so, what were the nature of those conversations? I'm not aware um, of any discussions that have been had. Um, the president has claimed he signed the most favored nations executive order on prescription drugs. He mentioned this again last night. Um, we haven't seen the text. Has he actually signed the EO? And if so, when will we see the text? And can you tell us what the status of negotiations are with Pharma? Yeah, so the um, the EO, I believe he's referring to there, is the previous one he's signed. Um, a provision of that was most favored nation, uh, which means that for Medicare programs, you have two ways to get prescriptions, Part D or Part B. Part B are drugs you would receive at the doctor's office, uh, and the executive order tells the secretary to peg prices for Part B to a most favored nation price to make sure that American citizens are getting uh, their medications at a price equally um, as cheap as other countries. So that was the initial EO I believe he was referring to, but any updates, um, I'll let you know in the upcoming days. Yes. Just, in, in, just following up on the uh, coronavirus issues, how is it not misleading for his advisors to tell him and compare this uh, virus potential to the Spanish flu of 1918, but then for the president to say that this could disappear by April? 
The president, um, again, was expressing calm. The president um, was hopeful that, you know, COVID um, would, uh, that, that we would be able to manage this and handle it in a way that we can make it go away as quickly as possible. And the president rose to the occasion um, and did just that. This was a lot more, I, by the way, it's worth mentioning, um, the misleading that the WHO and China did on this. Um, when you had the WHO, they were repeating China's claim that the virus does not transmit. This was a novel virus no one had seen. And you have the World Health Organization saying this virus does not transmit readily. That is the information uh, we were getting. You had the white- O'Brien said that this virus could be the biggest threat to his presidency. Uh, Matt Pottinger agreed with that assessment. And then President Trump would later say that no one could have predicted this when his own experts were predicting this. Look, you're referring uh, to the intel community, and they've what the president knew was, and I've walked you through this before, on January 23rd, the intel community briefed President Trump for the first time about COVID, and the briefing said uh, coronavirus from China is poised to spread globally, but the good news is that it is not deadly for most people. This is the information President Trump was getting, and the next time he was briefed on it was January 28th, when he was told that the spread was happening outside of China and the deaths remained all inside China. He was told then that China is not sharing key data. Indeed, China was not, because as I noted to you on January 9th, uh, the World Health Organization said it does not readily transmit between people. And on January 14th, the World Health Organization said no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. Clearly, that was not true. Um, even on February 29th, as the virus was spreading, the WHO uh, put political correctness first by opposing travel restrictions. Note that on January 31st, President Trump put into place those travel restrictions that Democrats called xenophobic. Shame on them. Yes. On the same day the president tweeted that the virus would become weaker when the weather started getting warmer, he told Bob Woodward it was going to be deadly stuff. So why does Bob Woodward get the president's unvarnished opinion when the American people don't? The, he was giving Bob Woodward the same opinion he gave from the podium. And he said, I am here. I want to express calm. That is what a leader does. He has always shared the facts. He has always been forthright. And he's always followed the advice of his medical experts, like Dr. Fauci, who called his response impressive. Yes. He said this was deadly stuff. Yes. The American people. Yes, he did. He acknowledged that hundreds of thousands could die, and he took the right response, which was to temporarily shut down the country, save millions of lives, and so too have his therapeutics, so too will the vaccine that's being developed. Yes. Uh, the protests in Belarus continue, as well as the crackdown on the opposition. What concrete steps the president is going to take to support uh, Belarusians in their struggle for democracy? and to stop uh, human rights abuses? Yeah, it's a, another very good question. Um, the U.S. is extremely concerned by continued human rights violations in the wake of Belarus's election. Um, reports of opposition figures being kidnapped, forcibly expelled, or otherwise threatened are just a few of the many method methods that the Belarusian government is using in its attempts to deny freedom of speech. The U.S. is working with our international partners to hold all of those committing these abuses accountable, and we call on the Belarusian government to release all who are being unjustly detained as for the election. The election there was not a real election. It was neither free nor fair. It was fraudulent. The massive number of Belarusians protesting peacefully makes clear that the government can no longer ignore the people's calls for democracy. Yes. Can we help the president keeping his promise of ending endless wars if this announcement on Iraq is just a drawdown, not a withdrawal? 
there's still troops in Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. There's still troops. It's not really keeping the 2016 promise, is it? Um, the president's drawing down our troops. These things take time. Uh, we want to ensure that the Iraqi security forces are well trained. Um, and our U.S. troops have done a magnificent job doing just that. We believe uh, that now is the time when we can make this drawdown, uh, keep the country stable uh, because of the training that our, our troops have done. So, an attempt to kind of try and make it look like the promise is being kept in advance of the election? No, not at all. Uh, this is a, an expression that we believe that Iraqi security forces uh, can do this alongside the troops that will remain there. Um, and the facts tell the story that this president broke the 39-year-old streak of American presidents either starting a war or bringing the United States into an international armed conflict. So unlike past presidents, um, this president has prioritized peace through strength, which is his foreign well, policy. Just one really yes, quick follow-up. Just really, really quick follow-up. Sorry. Just on the breaking the 39-year trend, how does that work if the president sent troops into Saudi Arabia? Chanel. Kaylee, thank you. Um, with Kosovo and United Arab Emirates, these are Muslim-majority countries spanning two continents now, each bringing some kind of agreement with Israel towards peace. Um, so my question is two points. Number one, have the Palestinians uh, opened up any kind of discourse with the White House as to their reaction to these developments in, in with Israel and Middle Eastern countries? And number two, have the Palestinians actually expressed any interest in distancing themselves from Iran in the interests of Middle East peace? Yeah, through the deal, President Trump made additional progress on reaching peace in the Middle East. Uh, Kosovo and Israel agreed to mutual recognition and normalization of ties. And Serbia committed to moving its embassy to Jerusalem only a few weeks after the historic Abraham Accords between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. This is another huge step forward for broader peace in the Middle East and the rest of the world. I'd refer you to the Palestinians for their reaction, uh, but it is quite telling that this historic historic agreement between Serbia and Kosovo addressing a decades-long conflict was only mentioned one time on CNN and one time on MSNBC. Yes. Okay, I want to ask about the Winter Olympics in Beijing in 2022. Uh, more than 160 human rights groups have called on the International Olympic Committee chief to revoke the Games from Beijing. Uh, would President Trump support an American boycott of the Games over the Chinese regime's human rights abuses? I haven't spoken to him uh, specifically on that, so I'd have to get back to you. Um, but this president has always held China accountable. His actions very clearly show that. Um, he has stood up uh, to, the, to China, um, unlike any president before him um, in modern history. But um, one thing um, I do want to address is um, just this really egregious, and I addressed it on Friday, but it's worth um, updating this, this Atlantic uh, story written by a liberal activist. Um, now you have 25 people who have spoken out and dismissed this story, and now you even have uh, the author of the story who said, quote, I share the view that it's not good enough quote, referring to the fact um, that he uh, did this false report based on anonymous sources. Um, and basically, when you look at um, the liberal activist who wrote this, he has a very bad history. Um, he can't be trusted. The left's new hero 
used to be their number one enemy for his role in the U.S. entry into Iraq. Indeed, in the early 2000s, uh, this author was then at The New Yorker, and he extensively wrote on the possible links between Iraq and al-Qaeda, a suggested link that was key behind the decision of U.S. involvement in Iraq. He relied on people who, in his words, quote, seemed to me to be credible, who said that they had information about such connections between al-Qaeda and Iraq. And Goldberg's reporting simply backed up his view that the U.S. should invade Iraq. Um, in Slate in 2002, this author argued in favor of the U.S. invading Iraq. And later, he even admitted that he knew people blamed him for helping to get the U.S. into the war. Uh, he wrote a sarcastic piece saying, yes, yes, I know I started the Iraq War. Uh, his reporting cannot be trusted, as noted by the fact that 25 people have come out on the record dismissing uh, his report, the report by a liberal activist. Thank you. And finally, we're going to go to a very controversial decision, I believe, by President Donald Trump to participate in the memorial for Flight 93. Now, nothing wrong with participating in this, with celebrating um, the fallen people, with making sure that we never forget what happened on September 11th, but I do not like when I see our government or anybody pushing the narrative, the false narrative of what happened on September 11th. But you listen to this and be the judge for yourself. God bless you all. Good morning and welcome to Flight 93 National Memorial. My name is Stephen Clark and I have the honor of serving as the superintendent at this very special place. The National Park Service is honored and deeply humbled to serve as the steward of this 2200 acre memorial dedicated in the memory of 40 amazing heroes. On this day, 19 years ago, the passengers and crew members of Flight 93 bonded together prevented their hijacked airplane from reaching its intended target, Washington, D.C., a mere 18 minutes flying time from this sacred ground behind me, which today marks their final resting place. Their sacrifice that morning saved an untold number of lives. Since that September day, these special people have always been remembered as heroes to America and around the world. The passengers and crew members at Flight 93 continue to be a testament to the best of humankind, showing incredible strength and resilience in response to an unprecedented set of challenging circumstances. We remember Again today, on this special day, come together once again to honor them. Mr. President, our First Lady, Secretary Bernhardt, welcome back to this very special place. To Secretary Chow, 
representing the Department of Transportation, to members of Congress, our township, county, state, and federal officials, and to the many Flight 93 National Memorial Ambassadors here with us this morning, welcome. To so many who are unable to be with us this morning and who are watching this ceremony remotely from around this nation and from around the world, welcome. Please know you are all with us in spirit. And to the families of Flight 93, those here this morning and those unable to attend, we honor your loved one's sacrifice and we will be eternally grateful. It is truly powerful that we can come together on this day as a nation, pause, and take the time to honor those we lost on the morning of September 11th, here at Flight 93, at the Pentagon, and in New York. I would invite you all to please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Please remain standing following the pledge for a moment of reflection led by Reverend Stephen McEwen, who served as the chaplain for the FBI Pittsburgh Division on September 11th and continues to serve in this role today. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, standing. Let us pray. Most merciful God, as we gather here, 19 years has passed since the sacrifice of those we remember today. With them too are all the agencies and people involved. And we pray too for those who have become ill from being here those as time has passed also died, simply by doing their investigation. We bring especially and commit to your care all the families who lost someone that day, whose life was forever changed and whose faith was deeply challenged. Those of us who were present know in our hearts something of that pain and suffering. As the years pass, May these families here and throughout the world know one that never gets over it, but by your almighty help gets through it. And so we commit this different kind of gathering to you. And we ask in all our hearts that you will bless and sanctify this place, that all who visit experience something of your love and presence, that it is a holy place where mingled with the sadness there is a feeling of victory and the eternal knowledge that all are forevermore in your presence and share in your resurrection life. And may these words of the Celtic prayer remain in our hearts. Circle us, O God, keep hope within and despair without. Circle us, O God, keep peace within, keep turmoil out. <laughs> 
circle as of God, keep calm within, keep storms without. Circle as of God, keep strength within, keep weakness out. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, please be seated. this time, 19 years ago, 40 individuals, mostly strangers, were coming to the realization and formulating a plan that they needed to take action. By this point in the morning, many aboard Flight 93 were aware that the World Trade Center and the Pentagon had been struck by airliners. Galvanized with this information, strangers came together in this national moment of uncertainty. Their choice to make a difference that morning has continued to resonate with people around the globe. It is fitting that we take this moment to pause and remember those individuals who unknowingly sacrificed their own lives and saved the lives countless others at 10.03 a.m. when United Airlines Flight 93 impacted the earth. The site of it, the site of the impact, now marked with a boulder. As we reflect this morning on the 40 passengers and crew members, I welcome my former colleague, Mary Jane Hartman, who recently retired as the Chief of Interpretation, Education, visitor services here at Flight 93 National Memorial to lead the reading of their names. As each name is read, Andrea Damon and Roy Caven, both retired FBI special agents and respective senior team leaders for the Pittsburgh and Cleveland divisions of the evidence response teams on September 11th, will ring of remembrance in their memory. Christian Adams. Thank you. 
Francis Bodley. Joseph Cashman Georgine Rose Corrigan Jane C. 
Folger. Officer Leroy Homer. Uh. 
Toshia Kuge. Talignani. 
Honor Elizabeth Wainio. Deborah Jacobs Welsh. Please join me in a moment of silence as we conclude this moment of remembrance. Thank you. This morning, I am honored to introduce Mr. Ed Root. Mr. Root currently serves as the Vice President for the Families Flight 93. He is joined on stage today by his wife, Nancy. Ed's cousin, Lorraine Grace Bay, was a senior flight attendant on Flight 93. Those closest to Ed know of his personal passion for sharing the history of the American Civil War as both an author and historian. He served on the jury to select the winning design of the Flight 93 National Memorial in 2005, and since 2006, Ed has served on the board of directors for the families of Flight 93. Throughout the memorial's creation, Mr. Root has served on numerous committees within the Flight 93 National Memorial Partnership. Ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome Mr. Edward. Mr. President, Mrs. Trump, Father McEwen, Secretary Bernhardt, Steve, and my wife Nancy. Honored guests, family members, and friends, thank you for attending today's commemoration. A common field one day, a field of honor forever. All of us who are of a certain age certainly remember that September morning when a darkness enveloped a beautiful late summer day that changed our collective lives. As the days passed and we tried to make sense of it all, some of us as family members of the heroes of Flight 93 began to come to this place. We came as strangers, strange land, we knew not each other. We knew not the members of this wonderful community. On the first anniversary of that tragic day, a large number of family members gathered to commemorate, to remember. We were housed and traveled together in that first annual ceremony in a convoy of buses. At the moment, we were beginning 
to know each other a little bit, to learn a little bit more about the men and women who share those last moments of life on Flight 93. As we traveled through Somerset, Shanksville, we were surprised as traffic stopped and law enforcement and others stood and saluted as our buses passed. Many of us were taken aback as we did not feel we personally deserved such honors. This day, we as family members have been treated by local, state, federal officials, the public at large with a respect that is sometimes awkward. We as family members do represent the heroes of Flight 93. This is and has been our only goal, to honor and remember them. This magnificent memorial, established unanimously by Congress in 2002, dedicated to the proposition that all who visit this place remember the collective act of courage and sacrifice of the passengers and crew, revere this hallowed ground as the final resting place of those heroes, and reflect on the power of individuals choose to make a difference. We thank the National Park Service and the multitude of volunteers and friends who relate the story of the 40 heroes of Flight 93. It has been 19 years, but sometimes it seems like yesterday. The wounds never truly close completely. The memories of our loved ones linger like a mist a soft breeze. It could be a song, a special date, a holiday, an article of clothes, a photograph, a name, and it all comes tumbling back. Some of us have crossed over the river, and a new generation has joined our family circle. It has been 19 years, and those too young or unborn on that fateful September morning come to this place, an honor to learn the realm of history is taking over from those of us who lived and suffered through that day. The image of those rushing into the flames in New York and Washington to save others, the co-workers who helped others at the risk to themselves, the men and women who rushed here but found no one to save. It is our responsibility as a nation to see that these actions are remembered. Our work is not done, it continues. We've watched this memorial grow from that common field. We've seen the multitude of items left by visitors at the early temporary memorials. Some of those items spoke with a logic that needed no explanation. A first responder, the law enforcement badge. Some spoke of continuing service and sacrifice. Purple hearts, combat boots, infantrymen combat badges. Items earned with blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Other items seemed possibly out of place, except that visitors felt the need to leave something of themselves. It might have been something found in a pocket. It might have been a child's toy. The heroes of Flight 93 had two elements that those on the other planes and those on the ground in Washington and New York did not possess. They had knowledge. Not a lot, but enough. And they had time. Not a lot, but enough. And they used that knowledge and they used that time to develop a plan and implement it. They were unable to save themselves, but they knew that unless they acted, many more would die. The men and women of Flight 93 came from different backgrounds and beliefs. 
They were mostly Americans, but also citizens of Japan, Germany, and New Zealand. They had one very important thing in common. They all came from a belief in a free society. Those who embrace the philosophy of terror have proven over and over that they will die for their cause. Their cause is death. They build nothing, they save nothing, they produce nothing. The cause of the heroes of Flight 93 was to save life, certainly their own if possible, but they knew the cause was greater than their own lives. It's been 19 years, a lifetime for some, but a twinkling of an eye in the realm of history. We must be diligent in protecting our freedoms. We must remember and we must honor those who rushed into the flames of buildings and into the cockpit of Flight 93. Thank you. Secretary David Bernhardt, the 53rd Secretary of the United States of Interior, which include, among many others, the National Park Service and the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Secretary Bernhardt has been a steadfast supporter to Flight 93 National Memorial and directly offered departmental support to this special place to ensure the final realization and completion the 40 wind chimes at the Tower of Voices. We truly appreciate your support, Mr. Secretary, and thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Secretary of the Interior, Mr. David Bernard. Thank you, Superintendent Clark. The Department of the Interior through the National Park Service is entrusted to serve as the steward and the guardian of our national parks, our monuments, and battlefields. And each site helps tell America's story, a rich and incredible story. The places we steward and protect often highlight exceptional action by incredible individuals, but none more so than this site dedicated to 40 heroes. Our sites would not tell the rich stories without the dedicated employees of the National Park Service, who I want to thank for working so closely with the families of Flight 93 over the last few weeks to bring this 19th observance to fruition. Thank you. Last night, I had the incredible privilege to join some of you to participate in the Chimes Dedication Ceremony. While there, I had an opportunity to listen to Patrick White and Gordon Felt eloquently describe the incredible reality of 40 strangers from diverse walks of life, thrown together by chance, each recognizing the challenge they faced, together uniting for a common purpose and a greater good, and then acting with dispatch and resolve against those who wished to attack our great nation. All of these events occurring over
over such a short period of time is absolutely incredible. Later, as I walked with Pat and Gordon up the pathway to the base of the Tower of Voices, I reflected on a fact, on a fact that I have come to know with certainty while serving in President Trump's administration. And that fact is this. Throughout my tenure, I have witnessed that this president has incredible confidence in and respect for the greatness of the American people. This confidence in the greatness of the American people has led him to find unity when it was not expected. It has led him to make strides forward for our country when no one thought possible time and time again. I do not believe anyone could believe in the goodness of our country and our heroes more. And therefore, it is my tremendous honor and privilege to introduce the 45th President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Thank you, David, very much. It's a great honor to be with you. 19 years ago on this day, at this very hour on this field, 40 brave men and women triumphed over terror and gave their lives in defense of our nation. Their names and their stories are forever inscribed on the eternal roll call of American heroes. Today, we pay tribute to their sacrifice and we mourn deeply for the nearly 3,000 precious and beautiful souls who were taken from us on September 11th, 2001. To the family members of Flight 93, today every heartbeat in America is wedded to yours. Your pain and anguish is the shared grief of our whole nation. The memory of your treasured loved ones will inspire America for all time to come. The heroes of Flight 93 are an everlasting reminder that no matter the danger, no matter the threat, no matter the odds, America will always rise up, stand tall, and fight back. To every 9-11 member all across this nation, the First Lady and I come to this hallowed ground deeply aware that we cannot fill the void in your heart or erase the terrible sorrow of this day, the agony renewed, the nightmare relived, the wounds reopened, the last treasured words played over and over again in your minds. But while we cannot erase your pain, we can help to shoulder your burden. We promise that unwavering love that you so want and need, support, devotion, and the very special devotion of all Americans. On that September morning when America was under attack, the battle turned in the skies above this field. Soon after taking off from Newark, New Jersey, radical Islamic terrorists seized control of United 93. Other hijacked planes struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center, and then the South Tower, and then the Pentagon. The 
terrorists on Flight 93 had a fourth target in mind. It was called our nation's capital. They were just 20 minutes away from reaching their sinister objective. The only thing that stood between the enemy and a deadly strike at the heart of American democracy was the courage and resolve of 40 men and women, the amazing passengers and crew of Flight 93. Donald and Jean Peterson were grandparents traveling to vacation in California. Deora Bodley was a student headed back to college. Richard Wardagdo was returning from celebrating his grandmother's 100th birthday. Lauren Katozi Rincolas was three months pregnant with her first child. Every passenger and crew member on the plane had a life filled with love and joy, friends and family, radiant hopes and limitless plane was hijacked, they called their families and learned that America was also under attack. Then they faced the most fateful moment of their lives. Through the heartache and the tears, they prayed to God. They placed their last calls home. They whispered the immortal words, I love you. Today, those words ring out across these sacred grounds, and they shine down on us from heaven above. When terrorists race to destroy the seat of our democracy, the 40 of Flight 93 did the most American of things. They took a vote, and then they acted. Together, they charged the cockpit. They confronted the pure evil. And in their last act on this earth, they saved our capital. In this Pennsylvania field, the 40 intrepid souls of Flight 93 died as true heroes. Their momentous deeds will outlive us all. In the days and weeks after 9-11, citizens of all faiths, backgrounds, Colors and creeds came together, prayed together, mourned together, and rebuilt together. The song, God Bless America, became a rallying cry for the nation. We were united by our conviction that America was the world's most exceptional country, blessed with the most incredible heroes, and that this was a land worth defending with our very last breath. It was a unity based on love for our families, care for our neighbors, loyalty to our fellow citizens, pride in our great flag, gratitude for our police and first responders, faith in God, and a refusal to bend our will to the depraved forces of violence, intimidation, oppression, and evil. In New York, Arlington, and Shanksville, people raced into the suffocating smoke and rubble. At ground zero, the world witnessed the miracle of American courage and sacrifice. As ash rained down, a 
police officers, first responders, and firefighters ran into the fires of hell. On that day, more than 400 first responders gave their lives, including 23 New York City police officers, 37 Port Authority workers, and 343 New York City firefighters. Today, we honor their extraordinary sacrifice and every first responder who keeps America safe. With us today is David D'Amato, a retired Chicago police officer and a current officer of the Navy Reserves. On 9-11, he drove from Chicago to Ground Zero. As David says, while the sights and smells of working at Ground Zero will forever be etched in my mind, what is more profound is the way this country came together afterwards. The police officers and firemen were revered as the heroes they truly are. The military was appreciated in a manner not seen in decades, and common people found new meaning in values like friendship, kindness, and selflessness. Thank you, David, such beautiful words, and thank you to every member of law enforcement who risks their lives to ensure our safety and uphold our peace. This morning, we also remember the 183 people who were killed in the attack on the Pentagon and the remarkable service members who crawled straight through the raging blaze to rescue their comrades. We express our undying loyalty to the nearly 6 million young men and women who have enlisted in the United States Armed Forces since September 11th, 2001. More than 7,000 military heroes have laid down their lives since 9-11 to preserve our freedom. No words can express the summit of their glory or the infinite depth of our gratitude. But we will strive every single day to repay our immeasurable debt and prove worthy of their supreme sacrifice. America will never relent in pursuing terrorists that threaten our people. Less than one year ago, American warriors took out the savage killer and leader of ISIS, al-Baghdadi. Soon after, our warriors ended the brutal reign of the Iranian butcher, murdered thousands of American service members. The world's top terrorist, Qasem Soleimani, is dead. Here in Shanksville, this community locked arms and hearts in the wake of tragedy. With us today is Chuck Wagner, a heavy equipment operator who lives just a few miles away. Very soon after the attack, Chuck helped search for the black box he was so changed by what he experienced that he joined with several members of his church to become what they call ambassadors for the 40 men and women on Flight 93. Chuck and his neighbors learned about each person, cared for their families, and each day, rain or shine, they took shift standing vigil over their final resting place. Long before this place was a national memorial, Back when it was marked by a simple wooden cross, Chuck and his fellow ambassadors were always here waiting to tell visitors about those we lost, 
19 years later, Chuck says his life is devoted to three things, his family, his church, and preserving the memory of the men and women of Flight 93. To Chuck, his wife, Jane, Thank you very much. To Chuck and his wife, Jane, thank you so much for being here. And to the over 40 ambassadors with us today, please stand and receive America's thanks. And this is a very deep thanks, please. Also with us is Marine veteran Jason Thomas from Long Island. On September 11th, Jason had just retired from the Marines, but he immediately put back on his uniform and raced into the nightmare of ash and debris. At ground zero, he found a fellow Marine, Dave Carnes. Together, they began to call out, United States Marines, United States Marines, can hear us yell, tap, do whatever you can do with the United States Marines. Soon they heard a shout for help. Two police officers were trapped beneath 20 feet of rubble. Jason and Dave dug for hours on end, knowing that at any moment the wreckage could come down on them, crushing them alive. At one point, someone told Jason to stop. Jason replied, I'm a Marine. I don't go back. I go forward. That day, Jason helped save the lives of those two officers. For years, Jason said nothing about what he did on 9-11. He did not even tell his five children. But when he saw a rescue recounted on TV, he decided to meet those officers. One of them gave him a gift, a steel cross made from a beam that Jason helped lift to free them from the hell on earth. As Jason said about the cross, it means a lot. It's a symbol of what we are as Americans, because that day we all came together and stood as a nation, as Americans. It didn't matter what race you were, what religion you were. It didn't matter. We all came together to help one another. I die for this country. I die for this country. Jason, thank you very much for bearing witness to the character of our nation, Jason. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. The men and women of Flight 93 were mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, husbands and wives. Nothing could have prepared them for the dreadful events of that morning. But when the moment came, when history called, they did not hesitate. They did not waver. Forty towering patriots rose up, took charge, made their stand, turned the tide, and changed the course of history forever. Our sacred task, our righteous duty, and our solemn pledge is to carry forward the noble legacy of the brave souls who gave their lives for us 19 years ago. 
In their memory, we resolve to stand united as one American nation, to defend our freedoms, to uphold our values, to love our neighbors, to cherish our country, to care for our communities, to honor our heroes, and to never, ever forget. Thank you. God bless you. God bless the heroes of Flight 93. God bless all of the families. 9-11 will never forget. God bless you all, and God bless America. Thank you very much.
Jesus Christ, thank you for everything that you have given us. Thank you for all that you have shown us, for everything that you have done for us. Please guide us, lead us in this way, Lord. Show us what you want us to see. Don't let us be drunk off of our own knowledge. Don't let us lean on our own understanding, Lord. We need you. We need you to guide us during this time. These are difficult days. These are difficult challenges that we face every day, every second, Lord. Evil does not sleep. Protect us against the evil. Lead us to do your will and not our own, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.